So yeah. that they want to be independent from like the US or, or or those markets where today it's dominating the industry of computers and stuff. So it's a political decision that yeah. we what Europe wants to become more independent, wants to have digital sovereignty. And of course that will fund many different areas. Yeah. So it will fund the area of digitalization so that we can move away from old ancient business processes, especially in the public sector. Yeah. Uh, it will fund um, investments in uh, like you know novel technologies like quantum computing that might come and and be very very interesting but it will also fund uh, traditional supercomputers with traditional i mean like the the next generation of the supercomputers that was for i mean we're doing supercomputers now in in so many years, even since we started, you know, doing uh, yeah, back in the days, those real old computers, you know, were also funded by the government of different reasons. I mean, we had the space race, yeah. we had the the race, the, the Cold Wars, you know, and before that, we had the chasing of the, the to how to decipher the different, you know, communications yeah. during the World, World War, yeah. Second World War, and those kind of things. So. They were all funded by somebody because there was a reason to fund it. But and now the, now the reason is digital serenity for when it comes to Europe. But don't you see a risk of um, uh, Europe investing in, for example, quantum computing, which actually is a hobby interest and, and a favorite topic of mine as well. Actually written a quantum computer program once. But anyway, don't you think that could displace investments that could go into proper AI otherwise? Uh, potentially, yes. But I think we we have to do... Both. There's always going to be branches of technology. You know, one branch is quantum computing, one branch is traditional supercomputing. But but the the angle I think is interesting here is that yes, so digital sovereignty. So I, can't, I can't even say it. I it's very hard. I know. I, I haven't those, even had a beard. It's one of those words which you, ne- <laughs> you can probably never learn to say pro- unless okay. you're like native speaking. Uh, no, but the, the 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 goal and mission is clear and sound. Now, how to get there and what does it really mean and what tech should be on your forefront to get there in the best way for Europe? And here, it, here I think that's the interesting topic now. If you think about quantum con- computing for me is not even Agenda 2030, it's almost like Agenda 2050. And we want sovereignty now. So what tech is more relevant from now to 2030? And then this is one angle. The other angle is, dude, the, the tech giants of the world, what are they doing? Why, why aren't we simply doing what they are doing? Why, 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 why do we do something else? Do we think we're going to leapfrog them? There so, are parts so of the European decisions which lean in that direction as well, like, you know, having a healthy IT industry also in Europe, having having service providers also in Europe yeah. who, who will compete against the giants that yeah, exist today. Yeah, but only from today. a tech perspective, there's obviously some sort of proven tech out there because some people are worth billions and doing something right. And if I use sneak behind the scenes, what tech are they using? I would start there you know, as, as, a, as a non-expert. Mm, and yeah. b- because HPC and, and the, the supercomputers, then we solve problems in one way. I mean, like even in, in, in weather forecasting and then, and, and now actually we, we are, we're actually solving it in a different way, potentially. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a big risk, risk and um I think, you know, the argument that sometimes here politicians in EU claim to use is that, well, the big tech giants are investing so much in GPUs and TPUs and FPGAs and other type of AI hardware. So let's not go there. 
let's do something else because they're already doing it and let's find what else is out there. And then they say, oh, well, quantum computing, no one is really doing that. No one is using that. So let's try something no one is using. Oh, that's cool. That's, but it's a big bet, right? It's, it's, it's super strange argument because, you know, of course, we want to have some kind of innovative long-term uh, investments in R&D. But you should also focus on what does actually Europe and, you know, Swedish companies need today. Yeah. And yeah. that's not quantum computing, I can tell yeah. you. But, I mean, there is a number of initiatives that... Uh, I mean, during all of these years, I've been involved in some of these projects. And I remember when I was working for uh, AMD, when I was uh, responsible for some of the HPC activities that we did in Europe specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, already then, it was a lot of discussions going on whether you should, you know, develop like novel computers or whether you should no. buy the standard out of the off the shelf uh, computing things and and i remember that in the end of the day you need to do uh, some uh, projects for the industry so the industry needs to do some research and it hasn't actually to do with about hardware it has to do with software so they need a specific software to achieve a specific goal like developing a new engine or or, or finding out a new way how to uh, do uh, fusion power and things like that that, that was right. happening at that time right. So that when when you have something that you need to do and you have a deadline, mm. and you need to be ready by twenty twenty or something, by then that, it becomes then, more crisp. Then they finally they what what happens is they okay we need to buy a computer to run the software on, mm. and then you buy one of these uh, standard supercomputers which are available off the shelf. Or, but always when you buy supercomputers, mm, there's people who devote their life on 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 on. Uh, um, hugging supercomputers. There are people who work every day with supercomputers. And they like to buy the latest and greatest. So in some of these initiatives, initiatives already then, they are buying like what's coming next. So, and sometimes that becomes super great and they will be, so buy like, you know, up and coming technology, which, which by, by then was, uh, there was some uh, uh, accelerated computers already back then, you know, with GPUs yeah. back then. Uh, remember the the Blade Runner from IBM, you know? Yeah, the Blade. Yeah, and, and some companies or some countries invested in that. And, uh, well, it was very brave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was potentially, they become very unique and they were leading and so. But uh, then that technology was uh, sort of, you know, didn't really survive commercially mm-hmm. because of low volumes. So the thing about chip industry and when you work with, computers which are driven by computer chips, whether it be FPDA, GPUs, CPUs, whatever, is that you need volume. So you need the volume to have a sustainable business model for the company that develops and and, and, and supports that kind of technology. And that was missing from that uh, branch. That branch never had any volume. Um, they, they, it was only like available in the form of this and in the Playstations. Yeah, and then yeah. the PlayStations opted for a different technology, and then you yeah, no longer have the volume. Yeah. So, so then, then it's dead. So it it it's will it will always be that companies or organizations or researchers that have a deadline, they need computing, mm-hmm. and they will buy the best supercomputer or the best computer they have for the budget they have. And some people have a small budget; they will buy something great under the desk or consume it in the cloud. Some people have more, a big bucket of money, and they will buy the latest and greatest stuff, you know. It's all been like that. I started working with this shit when I, in the 80s, you know. (laughs) And in the 80s, it was the same in the 80s. You bought, 
If you had a hundred thousand dollars or kroner or whatever, you spent every dime. So you bought the <laughs> coolest possible way you can could computers that you could get for that amount of money that you had. Yeah. And I did it also at that point in time when I bought computers and I remember the first time I was using computers in a commercial setting is that like this. So so I went to school in Uppsala. Perhaps uh, we should just yeah, we, pause a bit. Now we're, we're, moving, now we're bit, moving into uh, introduction. Yeah, but that's an interesting story. But yeah, yeah, let's go we here. can get back to that story in, yeah, in Uppsala. I, I think so too. But, uh, but we have um, you know so many topics we've touched upon already about HPC and different investments. And I think we should explore that a bit more shortly. But for people that don't know you, who yeah. is Leif Nordlund? Yeah, yeah, Leif Nordlund, that's me. Um, yeah, I, I come from a small town up in Norrland or in Helsingland, actually, which is not so far away, actually. So people sometimes think you come from Piti or something, which is, you know, I need to take a plane there <laughs> to, to, get, to get home tonight. But uh, no, it's only three, well, hour, well, three no, hours. North of Gävle is Norrland, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. You cross <laughs> something called Dalälven, which is a large river, exactly. and then you're in Norrland. <laughs> so I came from there, and uh, my parents and, 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 and family, we are like a traditional working background you know so my father was a basically a, a lorry driver or specialist in in anything that has to do with uh, driving from things from point a to point b and eventually specialized in in um, in in some of, of that things that he was doing for his working life and my mother was working as some kind of a secretary or a financial administrator in, in some of the small companies that we had up there so so with that background, you know, you never thought you're really going to do anything else than potentially end up working in some industry or something. But I, I had other plans. So when I was really young, there was a show on television, Blixt Gordon, or Flash. Flash, Flash Gordon. Gordon. This was the original Flash. black and white series, you know, you know I remember where you can see the strings hanging from, you know, the rocket ships were yeah. sailing around on strings. And it was really, it was really what was, I was really interested in that kind of things, you know, robots, spaceships and all that kind of things. But uh, I had one then, of those small books when I was, I, I read a Flash Gordon quite early with. But Flash is even 50s, 60s because, or something like this. Yeah, black and white. Black and white, black and white. And uh, also remember that uh, even in in that series, uh, Ming was already then played by the Swedish actor, you know, the Max von Sydow. Sido. Already then. So he was kind of interested because he also then played Ming like 50 years later or something like that. So he must have been really young then. <laughs> anyway, so what happened is that I was interested in that kind of things. And, and I, I was thinking, can I work with something like this when I become older? Then it becomes really interesting. So what can I become then? Well, I can potentially become some kind of a soldier and and, 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 and pilot some kind of an advanced battleship or something. Or But but then when once you got a little bit old, okay, that's not going to happen yet. We don't have any advanced battleships or anything. You know? <laughs> and potentially I don't have any good enough uh, reflexes and stuff to become a pilot anyway. And I'm, I probably have the same wrong body type to become. There was a lot of things hindering me from becoming a pilot anyway. So I decided, okay, uh, what am I going to do now? So after graduating from college, I was thinking, what am I supposed to do? I have absolutely no clue. And then I have a friend who was uh, starting one year before me because I have to do the military service. So he was starting one year before me. He started in Uppsala on on uh, on, on education there was like in computers. And I was like thinking, okay, I wasn't really interested in computers, but, but it's potentially a good job. 
it could potentially it's a much, lead to Blake's Gordon. Yeah, it's a much better job than than going to some interest or something. It, it sounds really interesting to deal with computers. So let's go then and do that education. Uh, I will choose that education as well. So I chose this one, and 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 when and when looking in the book then of available courses in or or, or you know uh, educations in computing, I opted for the one called artificial intelligence. So nobody knew what that was back then. I mean, there was some guys. Maybe you, Anders, uh, knew what about this. What so year is it? That's the this album. is the nineteen eighty-five. Okay. No, mm. I don't think I got started that uh, mm. yet. So. See, I was first then in, yeah. in this room. <laughs> I think so. so, yeah. Uh, so I, I thought, okay, this sounds really interesting, artificial intelligence. And I have read the books uh, from f- people like, you know, Isaac Asimov, you know, and, and mm. those kind of things. So, so I knew a little bit about it from reading science fiction books. But I had no history with computers. I never programmed, did nothing. I had no, I didn't have a computer or anything. A lot of my friends had like, you know, Sinclairs and those old early computers, but I wasn't interested. But I was kind of thinking like, you know, it's a spaceship technology. Mm-hmm. So okay. I went for it. And when I then went to school in Uppsala, I, I very quickly sort of, you know, cashed on the concept of this, that artificial intelligence is pretty cool. Uh, however, I'm not that good. In, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not that good. Uh, I think I started '86, but '85 I did military service and decided to do to apply for this. You know, so I, I came to that school and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there was also a lot of other stuff going on. You know, drinking beer and you know, <laughs> and talking to ladies and things like that. So you you weren't you weren't exactly. Sp- Devoting your life into computers, not a at lot all. Of strange distractions like uh, women and beer. That's yeah, yeah. And, and and didn't you say you were actually responsible for the beer at? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was also <laughs> kind of interesting. So we we had um, every student union, which was basically a region of the country in Sweden. Then we we had in Uppsala University, they had one house per region. So we had. Västergötland for, for the western region, we had Norrland for the Norlandic people, and then for the region I come from, which is Helsingland, and we had Gästrike Helsinge, which is from my region. And it's a, it's a sort of, you know, it's a small world. So, you, so basically when you're part of that, you know everyone, and you become friends with everyone, and eventually I got voted as managing then the, for a period of time the the running of the, the the bar basically so that means purchasing beer and sourcing and selling sourcing and selling beer not only beer there was also other stuff but i mean beer was the bread and butter <laughs> of course there's also some caviar as well and stuff like that but i mean the beer and but the bread and butter was like the beer you know so, let's put it this way if you fail on the sourcing of the beer there would that would have been what has would have been noticed exactly exactly but it was a very also, one of the first jobs I had where I had to be financially responsible. Mm. So you had like a budget and you, you, you had to sort of, you know, produce some figures and so on. So it, it was a good start also for becoming adult. Because before that, the jobs I had before that was like moving the lawn yeah. for, for, you know, in the summers to, to get some money to buy petrol and, and, and other stuff you need to survive in, in Norland. Yeah. Petrol is really important in Norland. You need to go somewhere, you know, so you have to go a distance, you know. You, you cannot walk. It doesn't work in Norland. You have to go buy a car or something. So... Um, and that was the sidetrack. So back to, back to the yeah, computer Yeah, but story. I mean, there's a, I like sidetracks because, you, you, of course, you need to help me to get back to the reading <laughs> story. But anyway, I was handling the bear then and... Uh, 
and and we we are drinking beer now. Maybe everybody doesn't see that right now, but uh, we are drinking beer now. So at this is some so kind cheers, of a Swedish IPA, I think that we drink. Yeah. Cheers, cheers. Yeah, cool. So during that period of time in in Uppsala, anyway, um, I did also start to work uh, in a job which managed to guard uh, some military facilities, or not military, but facilities in Sweden that was really important and couldn't be logged, like, you know, left unguarded. So that was my like other job. That so in the in the winter time and in the springtime, I was managing in the beer stuff and selling wine and stuff, and and also bartending, mixing drinks and things yeah. like that. So important things to know <laughs> in, when you are old, you know how to mix your own drink. You know, so you cannot sit there and be, be reliant on somebody else to fix your. You have to do it yourself. That's, that's a that's called a, a surviving strategy. How, how to survive. Okay. Uh, and my other job was guarding some facility, military facilities in the summer. So so I actually had my summer job, I had a gun. Really? Oh, so that nice. also was kind of interesting. I, I don't think they do that anymore in Sweden, <laughs> that they give it to like summer. I'm, summer uh, time workers who get a gun and, and go out and guard a specific place. Okay. Well, then I did that. So, And, and we had a, a version then we had a disease uh, back then, uh, if somebody remembers this also, called AIDS. So it has nothing to do with AI, but it starts with the same letters. <laughs> so I was also guarding some of the early AIDS patients because they were considered so super dangerous, you know. So you lock them in and then we put a guard on them. So I was, I was guarding them as well. But anyway, get, getting back to the story about Uppsala. So uh, when I was in Uppsala and eventually I managed to... Uh, I mean, of course, there was a lot of hindrance during the way, all mm. the beer and, and, and all the women and stuff like that. But eventually you graduated. Yes. And then I applied for a some kind of an internship or a, sort of a, a, a thing in, in a company called Sandvik. And, and that's where my real uh, history of computers really started. So because back then... Uh, they were very, very advanced in their thinking back then, Sandvik, if you compare it to other international companies. So the whole strategy of Sandvik was to have a very lean and efficient supply chain managed by computers. Mm-hmm. So uh, it all was like, you know, all the orders all over the world from all the... We were 144 countries where they were like had an office or something. And, and for all people of, that don't know what Sandvik does, what, what do they do? Well, it's a it's a group. It's a, actually a, a group company with different industries involved in producing and selling things made out of steel, mm. and everything from raw steel, like you know, steel things that you put into yeah. constructions, but also more advanced stuff, you know, like cutting tools and stuff like right. that, which you put on on really advanced industry things that produce advanced things like ball bearings and uh, cars and things like that. So it's a kind of a broad company that makes uh, things Excellence made out of steel. steel. So Excellence in steel in all kinds. Yeah, exactly. And, and sometimes it's not even steel. It's some kind of a thing, you, a powder you put in an oven, you bake, and out comes something called Coromant. So Sandvik Coromant yeah, is one of the famous parts of that group, oh, you know. Cool. But anyway, I was working there, and... Um, as my first job, I was kind of an intern, and 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 those kind of interns, they normally uh, they put them on some kind of an assignment. And my assignment was to, Goran, can you pick up the picture from Hong Kong? You know, with the, with the with the foreign looking people there. So, 
Yeah, yeah not that one, but uh, you'll get there. Yeah, that was, you go back. So that, this is actually a picture I took myself. So, so this displays that my first, like, you know, job after coming out of the education in artificial intelligence. Oh, really? <laughs> and this is so, still in the 80s, right? Or the end of... This the is 80s. the 80s. Yes. It's still in the 80s. So can, can, we, can, we, can we identify what PC is on there? It must be yeah. an IBM, right? It's so. a, it is an IBM machine. No, it's, it's probably a clone, I would guess. It's a, they IBM were building clone. them already done in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was very big on clones. So my assignment there was to go there and put IT into the office. They had oh, no IT. Right. So they were the last Sandvik, one of the last Sandvik offices all over the world that wasn't sort of, you know, having IT locally. Because I, as I said, the whole strategy was to have all the offices with computers. And then the, those, every office was sending their orders you know, back to Sandviken, you know, the city yes. up, up mm. next as you know, on the other side of Dahl Alpen, you know, up in Norland now, up in Norland now. What they call Norland, but it's not really Norland. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, so I remember I come there and they, they asked me, okay, go there and install this software that I got like on diskettes with me, you know, or or if it was tape, maybe. The the big one, the big flat, uh, fat ones, the big. uh, Yeah. And, and. Okay, so I did it, and and uh, I had to go out on on the on the street. Then, so the guy sitting there, or I, if I remember correctly, he was um, one of those young guys. So the young guys really adopted technology quite mm-hmm. fast. You know, I, I I had to learn them a little bit how to get started with the software package and so. And but the but the older guys they didn't really like it. They they used to have a secretary writing all the orders and all the papers <laughs> for them. And now they were supposed to do that work themselves. And they didn't really go like to go for them. That was a step down, you know, in what you do during the day. We're going to be out selling, or you're going to sit behind the desk. They didn't they didn't want to be behind the desk. So, but anyway. So, so this was the day, year that I think, if I remember correctly, this was the introduction of the three eighty six. So it was 286 computers for the, that you see there is 286 computers. Mm -hmm. And if it was probably 386 computers for like the central server and and they were all connected, the computers were connected in the local area network. So this was before the internet was uh, generally available. What is a 386 for the young (laughs) viewers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, can we come back to that? Because yes. uh, if I start talking about that, that will take at least 15 minutes. And uh, we will get... So, so this kind of evolution, the, the evolution track. of the processor. Yeah, yeah, well, I'll get back to that. So, Good, um, I like it. Yeah. Let's do it like that. Yeah. But anyway, I went out on this... On, on, went, went into a shop, like you do nowadays when you buy shampoo or when when you if you want to buy some uh, headache pillars pills mm. you go into a shop for that specific sort of you know thing this was a computer shop so you went into a computer shop and you bought some computers and this was not traditionally the way things are done you know but i mean i was i didn't know so i went out there and bought some computers and then they sent an invoice of that and so and then I installed the soft package and we had it up and running in a couple of days. And then I spent one summer in Hong Kong to to, to sort of, you know, put uh, computers then on the desk where they used to have typewriters before. Mm-hmm. So I've been part of that as well. This is, this this is, is big for me to be part of that, you know, like industrial revolution. So taking away a typewriter and putting a computer on the same person's desk, that was a big thing for me. But that's that's interesting because we now have um, we have we can talk about your career and how how you interpret the shaping of the compute era mm. 
It's, let's let's go this way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. digitalization already back in the 80s. I mean, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah, really yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's really it's cool. Where, where now we have a story that starts with putting, taking away the typewriter and putting putting the computer. Let's go. I like it. Yeah. So I think we could, we need to start to talk about before computers. One has to understand the concept about digitalization, as you mentioned, Anders. Yeah. So back in the days, so many many years ago, many many years ago, I think it was. Uh, let me see here. I have forgotten which year was it. Uh, somewhere around 1840 something. So very long time ago. Some 1840 something, if I remember correctly. There was um, two uh, persons involved in, in in digitalization, like inventing the concept of digitalization. In the 18 1840s, yeah. So. There was a lady called Ada Lovelace, and there was a guy called Charles Babbage. And, and, and there's been other guys involved. So you cannot like credit them for all the innovations. So, but, but the thing is that they had this notion that you could represent everything in the world with numbers. So, and that was the start of digitalization. So they, they, they sort of put that on paper that, okay, you can take everything in the world and you can represent it in number. Because these people, these people were mathematicians. Mm-hmm. I'm not, by the way. So for me, this is like, you know, a little bit above <laughs> my head. But, uh, but they had the concept that you can take anything in the world, a carrot, an, a donkey, or an a, 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 a animal, and you can make that animal into num- a number. And, and describe it in mathematical terms. Exactly. Like and if you can do that, you can also process it then, if you put mm-hmm. it in numbers. Because mm-hmm. calc- uh, how to work with numbers and calculate things, that has been known for so many years before this. But this was the year or, or, mm-hmm. or around that era that they found out, okay, you c- if, you can, if you can formulate your theory or a problem or the thing you want to do, if you can take that and put it into numbers, then you can also dig, call it digitalization then. And these numbers can be processed then in a calculus machine or that Charles Babbage has some theories how to construct the actual machine. But I think it was Ada Lovelace that had the, but the, the sort of this, so- this vision. She was the visionary. She was the super thinking, think, okay, we can do so many things with this technology. And he was like the engineer, Charles Babbage. He can actually do a blueprint of a machine. Oh, you can put up the other uh, picture that you had before there of, of Charles Babbage's machine that were the people. So this was before transistors yeah, and exactly. tubes and things like that. that. This was a mechanical computer. Yeah, here you can see the mechanical computer. So this is when, uh, much later, they actually built the machine from a blueprint. Mm. Not while he was alive, though. So he 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 sitting there working on his blueprints and thinking about these things. But I mean, this is very complicated. And who wants to finance this? Mm. It's, it's always it's a, a problem with computing. Digitizer. Yeah, he was super smart, but he hadn't he didn't have a million bucks mm. lying around so he can build this. But many years later, they built uh, they collected some money and they built this computer that were to to actually prove that it works basically. But, uh, mm. I'm, I'm, sure I'm just going I'm just curious. Did what was the term Daycoin? Was it digitization or what was the term they used when they wrote their paper or their, uh, you remember? What, it would, was actually, what, what were they calling it at the time? Mm. 
Now we have calling it digitalization, well, and we even argue what's the difference between digital. But I think this is the original uh, coinage in some way. What, what were they calling it? They basically they said like this: the power of a computer rests on the concept that numbers can represent other things. Yes. So that was the whole thing. So yeah. that, that was the revolutionary thinking that they had. Like you know, numbers can represent other things than numbers. I think an interesting anecdote here is that computer actually before computers was people. Mm. Yes. So people that sat down and actually did a lot of computation were people, mm. and they added up stuff and did stuff you do in Excel today, but they did it manually. And suddenly you had computers, which was actually. You know, a computer instead of humans. There was actually, a, but there, there was a term called computer, which was a human yeah. before yeah. computers. And, and if you want to see a good uh, movie on human computers, yeah. on television last week, they had a show on the hidden computers at NASA. It's a very famous story of how they had um, uh, women. Yeah, it's a, it's a series actually. So no, it's actually, a, but uh, maybe it's a series. But but it, but 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 it's women, and it, then the whole game is also that that this is in, in segregated America, and it was black women who actually went on and and basically were some of the smartest in this. So the, the human computer is actually before yeah. the real computer. Yeah. That is very true, and and that was still the case during that period of time. But they they thought they were so intelligent that they could sort of think, okay, we could with this technology we can do many things. Mm. But it never happened then because the funding wasn't available, technology wasn't available to really build these things. But a, a bit later, then they started actually to to get money. And why did they get money to build uh, more computers? Well, who funded it? Well, it was basically the governments. Mm. So the governments funded the computers because they wanted shit to be done in a specific period of time, like urgent. They had some problem they needed to be fixed urgent. So. So one, some of the first, very first, uh, you can show one of the pic- uh, pictures of the very ugly early supercomputer. Not that it, I'm going to talk about it, but it's it's a good picture showing that uh, how a computer can look like. So not that one is the latest and greatest. That's one, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is one of the old supercomputers that existed, you know, before they were made out of modern sort of ships and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, so and by the way, cathode tubes and things like but that. But the computer is actually the wall. In the in behind, yeah, yeah, the yeah, that's correct. The it's other the, one is just it's not the terminal. It's actually maneuvering the station. The other one, yeah, to control the computer. Yeah, so so that actually, this picture comes from the London Science Museum, so it's it's showcasing one of those early supercomputers. So why were they funded then? Well, it we it started with uh, that the you had the World War Two, mm. and then there's another move about that. And what is the name of that move? The guy who is the codebreaker? Yeah. I can't remember the name of the codebreaker. Imitation game. The imitation game with the codebreaker computer. Which yeah. Is yeah. When he built the mechanical computer. Yeah. So there were two computers constructed basically around that time that yeah. was kind of famous. One was the Alan Turing machine that this movie is about. That was one of the first generally programmable computers that uh, you're still programming by hand, you know. So you were turning knobs and things like that to program, but you could reprogram it to do other things. So they so they actually made it possible that the power of a computer rests on the concept that numbers can represent other things that I mentioned before. They made it happen because they received funding. And funding is essentially if you want to do something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that was one of the computers constructed. The other one constructed at that time was for 
the nuclear arms race. So it was to develop basically a very powerful bomb so that you can kill the enemy. So one computer was to know what the enemy was doing, which was Alan Turing's machine, and the other one was to calculate was to calculate the potentials of, 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 of what you can do with nuclear technology. So, the, so and, and then it's continued like that. You had the the Cold War after World War War. You had the Cold War. So a lot of computers being built and to to sort of you know simulate and develop new atomic weapons and things like that. You know can that can really sort of be state of the art. And then eventually you had the space race to send rockets to to yeah. places, uh, and the space race ended up then uh, developing a, a, a general term actually. Rocket science. So rocket science and is the other term of HPC, high performance computing. Mm. So that is because in the in back in those days, most supercomputers were made to calculate the trajectory of rockets and the uh, the the uh, comp- computational fluid dynamics of a rocket flying through mm. either the atmosphere or space because it's different characteristics when you're flying these two places. And, and how to maneuver it and, and the, having different kind of engines to power it and to simulate that. And so all these simulation technologies were, they were receiving a lot of funding to build novel specialized supercomputers mm-hmm. that was doing just that, received massive amount of funding. And it was very, very expensive. What happens eventually, and we get back to the story about Hong Kong right now, and what happened then about the, in, in the mid-80s is that you, you had some guys wh- who were a little bit um, dorky, as I was uh, when I was also young. Um, but they were dorky in a way that they really were interested in computers. They went sit, sit at home and built computers. And, and, and also they had to have some kind of a software on the computers. And they had a vision that everybody should have a computer. Some people didn't share that vision, you know, Ken Olson and those things and the famous story. But um, but these people, they made the the computer personal, the personal computers. So when when you had personal computers, you have something also at the same time, you have a very large market to sell that computer to. I mean, if, if everybody will buy a computer, you will, of course, have a lot of volume and you need volume in order to have a sustainable business model if you want to do some kind of technology. So that sort of changed the whole story of computing because now you can have cheap computers. Before the computers were super expensive because you were in, you, you, you had no limit in the funds. I mean, you want to be first to the moon. You want to have the most powerful nuclear weapon. So there was no limit in the funding. But now you have, everybody can buy a computer. So even I went out and bought computers in Hong Kong, you know, to, to put that software into play in, in the Sandvik office. But but this 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 story in the end goes always circle. What tech to focus on to get sovereignty? I'm just waiting to die for that because it has implication on how to think. But continue the story. I just want to make that. Oh, it 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 sort of it all ties together. That it the, does, the it fundamental does. understanding f- why you went to for supercomputer had one business mechanic behind it, and we're living in a different business mechanic with the personal computer entering the game. Yeah, it does. And 
And that what happens then is that of course there will be people connecting the dots. There will always be people connecting yeah. the dots because not everybody has an endless amount of money to buy a supercomputer. Mm. So people that all they wanted a supercomputer but they didn't have endless funding, they started building supercomputers based out of, out of these you know personal computers. Networking. So connecting several of these computers together and and and, the, and to connect computers together somebody had already had invented that idea before yeah, i mean the the beginning of 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 comu- computer communicating to other computers that has a lot we don't get into that today because that's also a complex history but it ends up in the way that computers can be used also to communicate in the in the way at the digital sandwich sending in the orders to one place to have a lean supply chain yes but we can do so many other things i can also send messages to people mass sending of messages so i get i can share my knowledge or i can or can send my march orders to a large number of people and i can direct an organization without having physical meetings so it 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 also it is not only a a, a tool for uh, representing things in thing in numbers it's also a, a tool for communication and sharing and, and gathering of data gathering of data came later first comes sharing and sending out information came first but then right after that comes okay now they're sending me back information so now i'm getting a lot of information from a lot of people that i'm supposed to understand and collect and of course you understand that being a person like me stupid and lazy you, the, if they send me enough information, I can no longer process it. So I will need to have some kind of algorithm to process the incoming data. And that was the birth also, of, I think, of uh, the way to use computers to process data in different ways than just, you know, orders and, and invoices and stuff like that. It's the fact that it is possible. It's an evolution. It yeah. was possible, so somebody will do it. And there was a lot of theories. I mean, when I was going in Uppsala in the university, artificial intelligence was software that you wrote, which was rule-based. So it was written by me. I was the one writing an algorithm that was supposed to be intelligent. So it wasn't really AI so as we know So the definition has evolved as well. Yeah, yeah, so now the definition is a more of a data-driven approach. You collect a lot of data because you get back a lot of data from, from people who are using your apparatus, your mobile phone or your computer or something, you know. And they are all connected because there's a technological internet that also came, you know. And since that all happened, now we have an abundance of information and we have powerful cheap computers. So uh, having an abundance of information at the same time as you have powerful computers, of course, then you can really do AI. And that happens. But it didn't happen until, you know, the 2000s. And if you look at the pictures I was showing you from, uh, from, from, from Sandvik days, actually you can show the picture of the guy sitting talking in the phone there. can be found for somebody too. So when I came back from Hong Kong, this is how I looked way back then. So, you know, you didn't eat, you didn't eat much when back in those you're, you're days. You're quite thin, yeah. Yeah, very thin. And, you, and if you see, you had a very beautiful uh, tie with, the tie a, with, a with one of those. Clip. It's actually not a clip. It's actually a branded saw, a Sandvik saw. saw again. Back, that, back then, Sandvik was still doing saws and tools. So I, I was writing software to manage that then, you know. So those were the, when I came back, I started working for that company and wrote software then to 
you know, process orders from that were coming in from all over the world. But mm-hmm. no artificial intelligence did. So this is the 80s. So no artificial intelligence. It was my brain creating the code. And that can never be great because I'm not that intelligent. So that can never be great. It can do stuff, yes. It can, it can do stuff hopefully correctly, yes. But to do something new, groundbreaking, and so we need to move away from the capacity of a single person's brain. So we need to have a, a, a big number-crunching machine who can take those things that can be represented in numbers, like data, collect enormous amount of data, process data in, in, in with this very powerful technology and then we will have something really intelligent coming out in the end not limited by a guy like that on the picture not <laughs> not limited by a guy you know, like his brain size or his visionary capacity and things like that so now it now we have everybody is more you know worried about that uh, this artificial intelligence that will go out and do uh, strange things which we don't want it to do but uh, I'm not so worried about that. I'm, I'm more worried about uh, things like you were mentioning, Anders, that uh, for a, like a country like Sweden or, or even Europe, you know, to stay on top of this kind of new technology and not be left behind. It's important to be, to be focused and, and really thinking, are, are we now doing the right thing, as you were discussing before? Yeah, good question. And um, perhaps w- before we move into that type of topics, let's uh, finish up your history a bit as well. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. you were in Sandviken a number of years and uh, if you just were to proceed a bit longer uh, along your career, what happens next? Yeah, so since I was then, um, I think I was quite a little bit visionary at least because I, I thought it was really interesting that you can actually do this large scale mm-hmm. communication for a company of Sandvik sites, you know, all the orders coming into one place and also we also were very early on email at Sandvik. So we're doing emails, even if the emails were all in one computer, not sending them around, everybody was logging in to that computer and sending the emails to each other. It was still very good. So with that concepts in mind, I actually uh, moved to Stockholm and started working for another company that basically, you know, I wanted to come to Stockholm and then there was this job and I managed to end up in the insurance industry working for Scandia. Right. Uh, and, and and with my sort of, you know, ideas about how to do things, I, I quite quickly did a number of things at Scandia was kind of interesting. So uh, one was the, that we were one of the first companies to have a international email system, like to email them between the different offices, not in one computer, it's not like in the mainframe or something, mm-hmm. but actually a decentralized email system. And that because, was in Scandia, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I knew some guys, um, Mikael Runheim, if you know that guy, is, you know, he used to have, uh, he's kind of famous in Sweden. So, so he had a company called Electropost. So basically that company was helping you to send the email from point A to point B. So from an email system in the office in Stockholm to an office in the US uh, of the same company, then we could have uh, send the emails back and forth. But this was this is before, before the this protocol. is before the internet. This, this is, is before, before the, HTTP protocol. This is before the internet was generally available. So this was all all done on modem pools and modems and you know 
and then it was very expensive. I mean, you had to have back then you had to have good funding to pay the telephone bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody that used to be doing modems know that it's back then it was not so cheap to be like you know calling into those you know BBSs. The, mm. the, back then it was something called BBS for people that don't know that is basically as a switchboard where a computer can dial in and then you can connect to other computers and you can start sharing some interesting information. Normally the interesting information you shared back then was like you know recipes how to make bombs uh, pictures <laughs> of nude women and things like that and and also music remember this was the first year that people had started bootlegging and sending music all over these telephone lines as well and you know downloading music we were using the internet in the company to to you know to communicate between the different offices and to share ideas and uh, make the company more efficient basically so this was very early and and right after that a little bit later this was the, this was the early 90s very early when i came to stockholm uh, all um, this was about the same time that you had music like you know all the albums were black you know you had acds you had metallica you know all the albums were black so that was this period of yeah. time so nowadays there's more the t-shirts which are black nowadays yeah. but back then it was the <laughs> albums were black um so so during that time um, it also became uh, kind of when it, when you were traveling because we had offices in the US so you got to travel to US kind of often you know to to help them or to synchronize the efforts that we're doing writing software packages that can be used in different countries to to manage the 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 the, the way that company was run uh the, the internet was really like you know booming so the internet was really coming down and that was a big revelation for me because now you can connect computers and you can use communicate computers for interesting stuff more than just to send orders you can send uh, big things you can send movies over the internet you know you can so you're not hindered anymore of the limitations of the modem technology and the, and the, the slow telephone lines so we we were one of when I was working there. So we asked them the 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 uh, management of the whole company and like the big scan, you know, the insurance company. We asked them, okay, is it are we is it okay if we set up a web server and and and, and to start sort of you know having a, a web page with our products and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, you go ahead and do it. So we we got some funding for it and we bought one of those. Back then, this was Unix servers. Back, yes. so the, actually, when you were going on to the internet, you couldn't use those personal computers to have your web server on. It wasn't really mature for that back this back then. It was too slow for that. So you bought one of those really expensive Unix computers, and you got it up on the internet, and um, you. So Scandia.se was the was the domain name, and uh, it's 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 for people that are really old and was living during the early 90s, they know that this was one of the first companies, that uh, Swedish companies, that had a, 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 a website. Otherwise, it was the universities. The universities had, you know, because they were already, like, connected to, to other universities and doing and things in, in the shape of Sunet and those things, which mm-hmm. still exist today. But this was one of the first companies that set up a web page. Oh. Enterprise, enterprise web. So, so talking about the products. Eventually having logins for customers. So customers can log in and do business with the company 
on the internet. And then we got Scandia Banken eventually, which hasn't wasn't involved in, by the way, but uh, but that also came. So it was a very interesting time. And then that led to my new movement in, in, in work life. So I thought this was so, so interesting with the internet and, and, and these kind of things. So I actively uh, sort of, you know, managed to nestle my way into a company called Sun Microsystems. And in, in, in this, you know, World Wide Web area, when everybody was going to go online on the web and, and do, everybody wanted to have Sun technology for that. Of some reasons, they very good marketing, but also uh, working technology. You can actually buy stuff that actually worked when you installed it. So it was. So they, they were building a lot of you know the early websites for companies were built on on some Microsoft. So I remember this. I, I worked at Upnet um, uh, Mercantile Data, mm. and basically we were doing the. We were first to take Cisco routing to Sweden and mm. we, and basically this this was the networking part and the other part was the b- building big firmer uh, service setups and, and you know storage and all this and and then it was very very clear we one of our niches was the new ISP internet service providers. <laughs> so we sold the more shit. advanced than modem pools in the cellar. No. Some people were actually getting rich of having modem <laughs> pools in rooms like this. Do people see this room in the uh, in the? No, they don't. No. Uh, but but we're sitting in a this, this, in a cellar in Stockholm, central Stockholm. But these in internet service providers. This is a little bit later. This is I like know, I know. But it started with modem pools in in cellars yeah. like this. And and I remember we bought. We bought half of uh, Information Highway. Do you remember one of the biggest? Uh, yeah, I remember them all. I met, I, I had all of those customers, like yeah. cust- customers and, for and, these and, companies. And basically, they, 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 one part went into become internet guys, and the the hardware, the infrastructure guys came into the company I work for. Mm. So we had now compact digital, uh, Unix stuff, and then it was, but but Sun, damn, that was cool stuff. That was that was. Mm. Super hot. That was um, Apple hot. I have some um, some uh, favorite stories about Sun myself. It actually was, was one of the first systems I hacked into uh, <laughs> when I was doing a lot of hacking and cracking back in the day. So yeah. But do we remember why Sun was cool? Because it was cool. It was cool. Mm. I think, as well. Yeah, but it, it was several factors, as I said. One was the fact that it worked and, yeah. and it could scale up, and yeah. but also it had a very cool. Uh, Software layers on top of the machine mm. as well, so you can actually develop a little bit faster. Mm. You had, so they, you had things like you know, like Java and Java and, and web Sun. server yes. technology and things yes. like that. And some of that technology also That's right. I was developed on uh, on um, on, on uh, some computers. So that when when you had sort of when you won the developers on your heart, so you need to win the developers. Yeah. that were developers, and if they developed on your software on your platform, they were also going to deploy on your platform. That is important. So you so you had to go out, and they were very very good at seeding systems into universities, and mm. and and then, then the people in the university they classic strategy eventually get, graduated. Get the students, get yeah, the students yeah, yeah. On it. And then they came out in work life, and they knew about Sun Solaris, and, and so two things: it actually worked, and it was also having a very very broad customer base of, of these people coming out of schools. You know, 
And it works also because they control both the hardware and the software the to a large extent, right? So like Sun Solaris, Sun Solaris was yeah. popular for the I developer know. community and Java worked well on it. We call that a full stack approach, Anders, <laughs> we who work in this industry. Well, yes, don't they don't. were very early with the full stack approach. Mm. And that is exactly how the, my, uh, now I work, you know, in a company called NVIDIA, exactly the same. Yeah. Exactly the same. Full stack approach is the, the way to go the, what, if you want to What's the something. jump between Sun and NVIDIA? So there's a couple of steps, right? Yeah, yeah, many, yeah, many steps in between. But, but uh, what, what is the pivotal steps? Well, the pivotal steps was actually, I think it was that if you work for Sun, it yeah. is kind of likely that you end up in NVIDIA eventually. How so, some, of the same pe- some of the same people went from, from Sun into NVIDIA. So how do you, that story I want to understand. How is that logic? There is a logic here. Yes, it is because it, uh, Anders cracked the story. It was the full stack approach. So you you have to develop a, some. If you want to do something revolutionary in 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 computing, you need two things. You need some really good hardware designers, mm. but even if you have that, you can fail because you don't have two things: volume and software. Mm. So and you can those. Two things are very interrelated. If you have volume, you will get software. I mean, if you build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. So if you have volume, you will get software. But also, if the software is scaling and working really good on your ship, that is also becoming kind of powerful so that people can do other stuff with because everything can be represented in numbers, as we remember from the 1800s. So we can actually do science on these things. And if you can do science on these things, people will buy it because people need to do science because they need to be ready with the project until 2020, whatever year they decide they want to be ready. So there's a sense of urgency. So if there is a sense of urgency, if there is a budget and there is volume, so you can actually have some software as well that's actually working on your platform, then you will become successful. And that was exactly how Sun was successful and exactly how NVIDIA was successful. NVIDIA started much, much later than Sun. But NVIDIA was becoming successful because they went into a niche industry which had volume. So because when NVIDIA started, it was a lot about, you know, enabling advanced graphics. And you have many uh, uh, user areas of advanced graphics. The most famous one is gaming. So and the gaming is like for everyone. So everyone can buy a computer and game. So everyone can buy this technology and you will get a lot of volume. And on top of that, people then want to use it also for other stuff because people need to do science. So if you have really good technology and you have people who want to do science, okay, you have these scientists and they don't have an enormous supercomputer, every one of them, remember, because there's no endless funding. I mean, maybe in somewhere there's endless funding, but I never heard about it. Oh, I, sorry, I'm I did. I did. to say something. Okay, here, but that should Actually, actually <laughs> Anders, Anders, there was there was a, a, there was something called Boo.com in the nine, yeah, 1999, 2000, like a Swedish company, and they managed to get a lot of um, capital. They had a lot of money. They were a startup. They would get it online on the World Wide Web and 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 to sell basically clothes and stuff mm-hmm. back then, and they had almost limitless funding. They had enormous amount of money behind their back, like investing into that company, as in many other companies, internet startups. This was a dot-com era. For people that want to read more about it, there's a lot of books about the dot-com era, and especially there was books about Boo.com as well. So I had an order from Boo.com. So actually, they phoned me one day, and and it was like, you know, we just want to have this 
list of computers and they sent like a list they want to have oh that's that's um, pretty, pretty that's substantial. that's 200 million swedish bucks you know or or, or 20 million uh, <laughs> or 15 million uh, british uh, pounds uh, back then so yeah um uh, yes i will send a quotation to you guys or do you have any questions or anything that uh, that we do we have a dialogue or should i just send you like a like a quotation oh yeah no you can send the quotation so no nobody was asked oh how fast can we get it that was the only question no question about rebates pricing whatever they just want to have this list of computers for like 200 million swedish and they didn't ask for discount and they wanted to have it as fast as possible so i made the quotation i got the order but then the financial director of i was working in sun at back then that time said no this company has no credit history. It has no proven thing that we can risk taking this order. So we won't do it. Okay, so I, I was sitting there feeling like the worst salesman ever in my like period of like being a salesman. But, uh, but your financial director probably didn't know the backing of the investors. He had his tools that he was used to working with, you know. And, uh, so, um, so what happened is that um, uh, in another country, another uh, in in Britain, uh, some took the order in Britain and stuff because they had a larger company with more volume, and and they were willing to take the risk of this, you know. But they they you know, just required them to pay like you know upfront or pay at delivery, and that was no problem. They paid at delivery, so they did the order them, but I didn't see the, that order coming <laughs> in anyway. So that was the only time I've been uh, working w- during a period that didn't weren't like, endless funding was available, but the rest of the time there was no endless funding. Uh, I did. Yeah, cool. So anyway, so getting back to the story, then um, what happened is that um, when when I was then uh, le- working in the Sun Microsystems, and there was a period of time when when the personal computer technology uh, x eighty six, as people, I mean, we we mentioned the three eighty six before. So there's like two eighty six, there's three eighty six, there's four eighty six. Eventually, there's this is the Intel chipset processing. Yeah, it was a standard. standard they right? invented the standard because this was also run a little bit by the governments because the governments were funding it. So they decided it should be a dual vendor strategy. So the x86 is a neutral term defining a, an instruction set that, that is publicly available. For the ship that, Yeah, and then you can be a licensee. So you can be an x86 licensee. So you had two competing technology vendors back then, Intel and AMD, that was doing x86 chips then based on that standard. And of course, when you have a standard and many vendors, you will have better pricing because you will have competition and you will also have larger volumes um, because when when something something becomes kind of popular, like a standard, like more people will write software to this platform and the volume will be larger because there's more software available, the more computers there is need for. It's a spiral. For. Yeah, it's a viral, yeah. So that's that's how it happened. And the, so Sun had uh, another processor technology called Spark. Yes. So it was like Sun's technology that also was actually also licensed so together with some other company, the way they were doing this technology. So it was not only Sun. But Sun was somewhat controlling that ecosystem, like Intel is controlling the x86 ecosystem. It was similar. And but the volume was so much bigger on personal computers, you know. Mm. I think, you know, the time is really flying away here. And we have so many topics that we want to cover. <laughs> Do we? Do we have topics to cover? I didn't know that. We Sorry for that, Anders. But anyway, so just cutting that story short then. Yeah. 
because you, so you the, 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 the question was this how did you end up at Nvidia from yeah. Sun? Yeah. Yeah. So there was an interim step, and, and that was AMD. So AMD, I started working for AMD because the Spark ship wasn't really flying anymore. We weren't selling more and more, we we're selling less and less. X86 was taking over because the volume technology. Yeah. So for me, it was, um, I was then, at that time, I was responsible for Sun's x86 service in Sweden. So for me then, to change from Sun, promoting x86 x86 platform into AMD that wanted to have a local person in in the Nordics running the business, it was not a a, a large step. It was a very, very small leap over like a fence. And then I started working in, in AMD doing the same thing, promoting x86 technology to to companies and enterprises and uh, supercomputing centers that wanted to build computers based on x86 technology. And I remember traveling around in the Nordics and in my first weeks at AMD, we were promoting a technology that that was available on on paper. So you couldn't buy it, but it was available on paper. So we were promoting then the x86 processor together with an, something called an accelerator. So like an, a, like an advanced math processor that can do calculations much, much faster. We were traveling around with different supercomputing centers and talking about this upcoming technology. And um, uh, supercomputing is a conservative industry, actually. So they want to have the latest and greatest, yes, but they also want to have something that actually works because they need to get shit done. Mm. So they won't buy something that is novel. We mentioned quantum. So, so this was kind of novel back then to have an accelerator back then because who was going to then write the software? But at that time, AMD's biggest competitor was, I guess, Intel. Yeah, yeah. Right? Intel was uh, the, the leader in the... This was the challenger. Yeah. Intel was the leader, AMD was the challenger. And the way that we worked in, in AMD to challenge Intel were, were two different strategies, I would say. One was to make systems that was better, I mean, better architected. So, mm. And the other one was to invent new interesting things like this uh, accelerator. accelerator but accelerator never flew. So then never became a product of different reasons. Potentially not enough volume and who was going to write the software. Right. So that was different from Sun, you know, because at Sun we wrote the software. So Sun took responsibility for writing the full stack approach. Mm-hmm. So at AMD, we did not have the full stack approach. So we were working with the different ecosystem vendors, you know, like companies back then, you know, who was writing operating systems, people who were writing later virtualization layers, like companies like VMware and so, you know, yeah. becoming more and more popular. So we had to work with those guys so that they had to write the software. So you had the we delivered. so you could actually deliver on this the whole story yeah, yeah, yeah. to value for Yeah, customers. we were dependent on Other the ecosystem to, de- to, 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 to sell this. Mm. So that was kind of interesting. And, and then we had the same story a little bit like Sun had, that Sun s- sold fewer and fewer Spark processors due to the fact that Intel was so popular with the x86 platform. At AMD, we had a little bit of a snag that the CPUs that we um, ended up with a certain year was not as powerful as the competition. This so they is leapfrogging every year. Yeah, they were a bit, though, they were a bit slow. And uh, they were so slow that we actually sold so very little that we had to close down most of the offices. Mm. For one it. year, we, do, we ended up in the wrong side of the leapfrog. 
Yeah, I think it was a little bit more than one year, but because this was a this was a, a a big snag. It was a big snag. So potentially, then okay, the CPUs of that generation weren't mm. super great. So, so so they they was not selling enough. So they had to lay off uh, people and close down offices. So I was standing there for the first time in my entire work life without a gig. So I was actually unemployed for a while. I didn't know what to do. I had no clue, actually, because sometimes, you know, like, now I'm going to do something completely different. You have that. Every every person will have that during his lifetime. I'm sure that you guys have had that sort of thought somewhere. You're sitting there. Now I'm going now I'm gonna, now I'm gonna, to go pursue my dreams. Yeah, professional a singer. Open a bar or something. Yeah, yeah, open a bar, a bar or play guitar or become a professional singer or and things like that. So The 40-year 40 yeah. 40 crisis, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I started... I started actually working for a startup because I knew some guys. I didn't like that so much because I had been working with an American company for more than 10 years, you know. And this was a startup. You know, startups are very different. I'm sure that you have worked with startups, all of you, I think. But I had no experience working in startups. For me, it was a little bit of a you know, revelation. and, and uh, So maybe not uh, the ideal way to change your career path working for a startup when you had so many years in the past working for American companies, but abundance of resources. And now you have very small resources. Um, so and then I got le- left that job and then I started working. Okay, let's go work for one of my previous customers that go work for a supercomputing centers who use these supercomputers, you know. And yes, I did that for a while. And... Uh, that was actually kind of very interesting learning thing. To you got work. another perspective. Yeah, yeah. To work with supercomputers from the inside to make the users happy and try to make something. Uh, actually connecting it to scientists, working with the scientists who actually want to go and do something. And then after that, the working with that, I tried. Then I went back to the selling side because I got a, a selling job in one of the p- organizations in Sweden that was selling this kind of technology. And then I met NVIDIA. Before you go to NVIDIA, because I think that's a topic in itself, and I think mm. a lot of people would like to hear how that uh, got started. But uh, you worked with HPC or and supercomputers uh, before that a bit. Can you just mention some examples of what type of supercomputers are we speaking about here? The names of them, who was creating them? Etc. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about it. So uh, uh, when I started working with supercomputers, which was done at Sun Microsystems, actually, mm. we were first selling the Spark supercomputers to customers, which was based on the Spark technology. So very, very, very powerful chips, very, very expensive chips with its own operating system, proprietary operating system. Still, it was Unix, yes, but yeah. it was it was Solaris. Solaris. Then yeah. came Linux, really changing because Linux were running on the x86 platform and you can connect, connect a lot of x86 computers together with the Linux software stack. And that became more popular. And then was I was at AMD selling that kind of technology too. Yeah. And, and I was traveling all over Europe then selling to research uh, institutions, this kind of supercomputers uh, based on AMD technology. Uh, what happened after that is that um, this thing that I was mentioning, you know, traveling around talking about accelerators, that shit actually happens. So, so people were actually started using accelerators, but they were not using the AMD accelerators. They were using NVIDIA accelerators. Yeah. So, so I was actually selling NVIDIA accelerators then before I joined NVIDIA, oh, cool. because that was the latest and greatest. And, and when then. you were working on the on the supercomputer on on the customer side, what was the stack when you were on the sort of on the customer side? 
that was a we had a combination of we had x86 servers and like normal ones from from brands like supermicro and such you know mm-hmm. um wow that's a good story anders one of the computers that i you know what we have to <laughs> turn to <laughs> yeah. hurry up a bit here and can I'm, catch I'm up destroying the, the whole uh, concept <laughs> no, no 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 too I many mean, I, stories to share it's so much i this think is, this is flowing quite well so let's continue you ask the question i have the answer yeah we know but this is this is the story of computation as a way to understand where AI is going, in my opinion. I, I, because if you see the journey, there are s- several patterns here mm-hmm. that tells us something also about the future. Yeah. But I think we should come to NVIDIA. Yeah, yeah but we'll come there. And we, we are there now. So, so accelerators became popular at supercomputing sense because they were so much more powerful than CPUs. And what are. is an accelerator? Comp- comp- Basically, it's a, it's, it's a massively parallel processor compared to a CPU, which is designed to do a number of tasks, but to do it a number of tasks in, in a, more of a serial way. So first you do this and then you do that. Since the technology was from the beginning developed for that, to do first one thing and then do it the next thing, that is called a seared or, or sequential technology. You do first, you do one thing, then you do the other ones. There's been numerous trials how to make CPU to become more parallel, mm-hmm. but the, since the, the original design is to do one thing first and then you do the other, but, you can but never how narrow was the first parallel when you did, when you had this parallel technology? Mm-hmm. They were quite more. For certain tasks, were they really uh, were they well at good at everything? No, it was. Um, there were many different companies trying to make uh, accelerators, pal- uh, parallel technologies. We can call them accelerators. So mm-hmm. you can have par- you can have accelerators made with FPGA technology. You can have them made with um, some other novel ship or whatever. But the problem is that you need to have two things, and I mentioned it before. You have to have mm-hmm. the the really good hardware designers and also a full stack approach. With full stack approach, I mean, uh, you have to control or develop the software yourself and you have to have a lot of developers also working with you, an ecosystem or so you need to we call that volume. Volume is consisting of, a, of both the software and the hardware and the people. Those three things are but, the volume. But used to be specific now, we are talking about this, the very low end OSI stack software to run the hardware. What are you talking about? How far? No, we are talking about uh, all the way tools that can help you to process data if you want to do AI. So, so bottom line. So let's let's so software meaning like I have great full stacks. So oh, the whole stack, all over so, so the what, tech, you, what you want to do. In the end, it. if I want to run something business like that is going to use parallel computing, i.e., GPUs, mm. it it needs to be built so it works for this exactly and uh, and somebody has to fix that and as i mentioned uh, in, in some companies and some approaches are that they will work with other companies who will write the software Ecosystem. and then you have yeah, yeah and then you have companies like sun and nvidia which have a full stack approach and the full stack approach is that okay you write most of the software but you also have a large volume installed base with a lot of other users who wants to use this technology and they will write complementary software that was happened with ai so the early ai researcher that really made ai breakthroughs 
they uh, d- uh, discovered basically that GPUs were ideal for the job. It was not discovered by Nvidia or people there. It was discovered by people that were wanted to do something, and they were having urgency to do that, and they did not have massive funding, so they had to go for cheap technology. So they found that the GPUs were the cheapest way to get massive amount of computing Apparently. to complement your traditional x86 computer. Because x86 computers are cheap and generally available, yes, but they are not super powerful. So there is, you, there, you, there's a limit of how many of those cheap x86 computers you can connect, connect together in a big maze of networks, you know. There's a limit how, how, how go- good the performance can become out of that because you can never be massively parallel because there's going to be too many complications when you connect 10,000 or 20,000 of those cheap nodes together. It's becoming too problematic to sync up the job. And, because and, the original and, idea for for a graphical uh, a GPU is graphics. Yeah, you, and that and yeah. graphic is is painting a picture on a screen, and you cannot wait for it has to be massively parallel because you cannot wait for the dots to come up on the screen. It has to be for the eye, you know, visually appealing. And that same technology can then you be used to do massively parallel and oh, ha, ha, oh, basically oh. high the latency. Because as I mentioned, if you have a lot of computers or a lot of cores or whatever you have a lot of, you you cannot have your algorithm to be sequential. Because if your algorithm is sequential, you will hit the problem of latency. So you you have to have a parallel algorithm. Someone has to write the software. It has to be a parallel that can use those abundance of compute technology that is available in a GPU or in a room full of uh, connected computers. If the software is massively parallel and you manage to hide the latency. So if you can have a method of working with your algorithm that hides the latency, then you have the full stack perfect approach. You have a good ground technology and you have a good algorithm. And that was what the early AI scientists did just that. So the early AI scientists, they discovered a way to do that by having uh, uh, something called a matrix multiply. It's like a matrix. Uh, it's basically on a thing you do over and over again in a massively parallel way. And, and the reason you want to do that is to analyze a piece of data. And you analyze that piece of data. It can be pictures or videos or, or collected data of some other kind. And you analyze that using these algorithms. And eventually, when you have analyzed enough of it, you will have an, like an answer. And the answer will be something called a model. And the model will contain a knowledge about a specific subject. In the beginning, it was pictures of cats that everybody knows. So they were competing with algorithms that can recognize cats on pictures, basically. On GPUs. Perhaps we can also speak a bit about how you got started at NVIDIA. And uh, this was in, was in 2016, 15? 16. 16. Yeah. So the reason was basically that... uh, I was already selling that technology because I was a salesman and uh, I was selling supercomputers. And when I was selling supercomputers, I encountered, of course, this was the upcoming technology. Because the reason it was upcoming, because it was 
gaining popularity because it's been around for a while. At this, but at the same time, it was just recently popular with AI, and AI was booming. So it was it was had a long history. Yes, it was mature because people were using it for graphics and and gaming. graphics and gaming and some other computational heavy stuff like simulations. But to use it on analyzing data was kind of fresh. Mm. And and so that's how I started. Oh, you know, I had, you remember, Andres, I went to Uppsala and I studied artificial intelligence yeah. in the eighties. Yes. So oh, I can work with AI now. <laughs> I can have a job, which is like have AI in the title, and that's why I went to school in Uppsala originally to work with AI. So the now. full circle. Yeah, yeah, no. And I never got to ride this spaceship or whatever. But it's, my life is not ended yet. So maybe there is like a solution for that eventually. But right now I'm happy to work with AI and uh, work for NVIDIA. Because I could finally go to sort of, you know, where I originally thought I was going to get into when I started in the IT business. So at that time, uh, I think NVIDIA has just, you know, before at least 2015, it was mainly used for graphics, right? For gaming. They up to but 2012, I would say. In 2012, there was some uh, early de- some developments there where this was really becoming popular. To uh, well, was to, it popular uh, at that time? I think AlexNet was one of the first one that actually started using. Yeah, yeah, yeah but I'm but talking it about really no, I was no, it was time. popular in in starting to become popular in supercomputers. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because it was more mathematically more powerful than the CPU, mm. so it was gaining popularity. Even if people had to write the software, yes, it was. But it was a good tool stack. It had a, mm. a cool stack called CUDA, and the CUDA tool stack was easy for people to get started with. It actually could program a GPU in an easy way mm. to, to to reap the power of these you know mathematical operations at inside. Yeah, so CUDA is something we can speak a bit more about. But I remember seeing the market cap for NVIDIA, and if you look at that throughout the years, and you see 2016, it's like an extre- extreme increase. Mm. Like exponential increase, I think, in 2016. I think he, they tripled in market cap in one year or something. Mm. Now, people argue, is that because of the use, they, they switched from not only using from for gaming and started using AI, or was it Bitcoin, or what was it? It was a combination of all those things. Yeah. Yeah, so it was not a single event. It was a combination of all of those events. I also mm. remember that it was an, uh, uh, when people actually had uh, availability of the data that is required to do AI. Yeah. So it was not only that the, the technology was available, but also the data was available. Yeah. So at that time, you, you started, people were starting gathering data because, okay, it can be interesting. Because before that, people were basically putting your data into files and folders in your cellar of yeah. your office and not looking at it again. And you had a rule like you have to save it for 10 years for for like, you know, financial reasons, but no other reason to save data. Mm. So now for the first time, I actually had a reason to start saving your data because you can do things with your data. You can and mine your data. And at that time, we didn't have any problem with GDPR and this type of um, legal issues that we may have today, right? So yeah. We could easily store the data. Cool. Uh, so you started working in a, at, an, uh, at the media at that time. And um, for for people that don't know really what NVIDIA does, I mean, you, of course, they, I think they know the GPUs, but it's so much more than GPUs that they actually do do. What would you say the main like products that NVIDIA has are? Well, the main product is still the GPU. So that's mm-hmm. the base lighting technology. But what people do at NVIDIA is to 
research, invent and work on ways to explore and use that powerful technology in order to, to get things done. So that is the whole purpose. So we have an, more people employed at NVIDIA working with software than we have people and, and designing and working point, with hardware. You know. yeah. Yeah, so so, so we are, we are trying to, I mean, we started having this, you know, CUDA and some other yeah. things that can make it possible to use the GPU. What is CUDA? CUDA is basically a abstraction layer that uh, to talk about, you know, in the way that you should talk about these things from a technology point of view, but uh, it's a, it's a, it's a language how to, how Code to language. program your GPUs. It's a language, but it's a real an abstraction layer of the underlying technology because you have to have a parallel computing technology. And CUDA is massively parallel in its nature. So it's, that a, wasn't so it's available. A, it's a, it's a coding language done for parallel computing. Yeah. Yeah. And specifically for, for, for uh, an un- underlying technology, which has a lot of cores. But, but let me be the idiot here. Let's talk, let's break down the mm-hmm. stack a little bit. Yep. So we have the GPU and in the GPU, we have the chipset. Could we use, could we now dress up NVIDIA that make, we took, we said the difference is full stack. And, and here we only talk about a uh, GPU. Now let's, let's, could you please educate me on the, uh, I don't know what all these things are happening. Yeah, yeah. So first you have the hardware, which is in nature then designed to do graphical stuff, which is massively parallel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, and, and as the, uh, they said in already in the 1800s, uh, if we can represent it in figures, we can do things yeah. with it. So this is the hardware, right? Yeah. So that's the hardware, but also the concept that if you, if you have enough hardware, you can do interesting things that comes back from, from Ada Lovelace. And, and what is fabrics. the next fundamental? That, to make stack. this to make this interesting for people to actually use it, you you need to be able to translate then the knowledge you have in your brain mm-hmm. into mathematical uh, algorithms, mm-hmm. which can be, then be programmed on onto a chip technology. Yeah. And that abstraction layer, I mean, to make it possible to take mm-hmm. your ideas or your representation of uh, things into figures. Making those figures understandable for a computer, you need something called a a a, a compiler or a, or actually a language translator that can translate your language with this your is the machine with, compiler. Yeah, yeah. With you, you need some technology then to translate your code, your representation of ones and zeros, uh, which is mm-hmm. doesn't start at one and zeros. It starts with some kind of a language and that is called a programming language. So programming language is the, the thing that you put in as a user on the screen with your keyboard and uh, you write, I want the computer to do this. Okay. Then you have to take that software and compile it in a way that it runs on a specific technology. And of course, the language has to be able to translate then your your ideas, your algorithms into something that is efficiently run on 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 the Specific underlying technology. Yeah. yeah. And that's why it's important, like like for Sun and, and like for NVIDIA and those kind of companies, it's important then to have a tool which is make it possible then for a lot of people to take their intelligent ideas and make that run efficiently on, on a computer which is powerful. So that was the underlying sort of business uh, and what is the reason to buy a computer? So, and what are the layers? CUDA is the language? Yeah, CUDA is the, the language. It's actually started out as a university project. So it doesn't actually come from NVIDIA from the beginning. 
So, and, and uh, when NVIDIA started working with those people, we thought this was a really cool technology because before that you programmed uh, uh, in, a, in a much stranger way, more of a graphical telling the, the GPU how to uh, basically paint the picture on the screen, which is a different one story, you know. So now we, want to, now we don't want to paint the picture on the screen. Now we want to do some kind of an intelligent mathematical operations uh, with the original visions of Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage. So these people who wrote that language, um, they uh, later then joined NVIDIA, started working for NVIDIA, and, and, and developed then CUDA, released in that name a little bit later from NVIDIA. So when CUDA was released, then we, we went out to, I mean, a lot of brightest minds in, in the different universities and research institutions all over the world and started to, to, to help them to get started on CUDA. And, and it grew in popularity, but it took a long time. So this is not something that happened, like you said, like exponentially overnight. So this took like 10 years before it came in more. So it became kind of popular in, in 2012, I would say. 2012, they, they, more and more people were, were, were using this and finding it good enough to actually get a lot of things, lot of things done. And then at, this, at that time also the, the, the AI scientists uh, found this technology. And when they were using it, they were winning the competitions over the competing technologies. So there were other, other ideas how to do AI, which were running on CPUs. But this was much, so much faster. And, and AI is parallel in nature. AI, you don't have in AI to do first one thing and then the other thing. In AI, you can chop up a problem into small pieces and do a massive parallel computations because it's all mathematics. So it's parallel mathematics. And that leans itself very good to GPU technology. It was a perfect marriage. So very good technology from NVIDIA in the form of parallel computing architecture. On, on science area, uh, if we can call AI a science area, I don't know. But I mean, a, a way to, to approach uh, doing uh, things with ones and zeros, which will represent the things from the real world then. I like the original vision from Babbage and Eddie Lovelace. And at the same time, the availability of the data that is required to do this. Because, I mean, if you look at before the 2010, there wasn't any large data sets really stored in a way that you can actually access them in a quick way. And, and, and because now storage was also becoming, you know, cheaper to buy by the gigabyte or per the, per the petabyte. So they can actually have a, a storage system also containing a lot of data and easily accessible yeah. by these powerful let, computers. Let me, let me, fin- let me continue. I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I, I'm playing like the, I think this is quite uh, for many. So let, let's say I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a data scientist and I'm working in the CPU world. And I have come so far, so I'm, I'm at Python, right? I do stuff in Python or Julia, and I'm really intrigued now. I want to try out to get whatever I'm doing down on GPUs. So, so what's the path now uh, to be a Python CPU programmer? What do I need to do in order to get my stuff into the GPU world? How does that, you know, what is happening here? I think that's... Um it's an, in in that specific case that you are describing. It's a no-brainer. I mean, do, do I switch? I mean, yeah, Python, the, 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 the Python I, I is already a... an abstraction layer where you don't need to know that you have a GPU uh, underneath you. There are some other. Uh, so you can it, from the Python 
tell that this will be a yeah, parallel yeah. Pa- process. Python has a complete one-to-one connection yes. to GPUs. Yes. Because that Python is a new language. Yes. So it was already developed okay. in mind the mind so of being is, parallel. So but if you look at some older like the pandas and scikit learn from you yes. know actually um, driven out of France some of these technologies. Uh, so so those technologies was they were written for for CPUs. Mm-hmm. And you know Hadoop and those kind of you know the, 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 when you connect a lot of x86 together computers together to process large data set that has been available for, available for a while for from DataBricks and you know you know Hadoop the big and, data Hadoop stack. yeah 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 the, that kind of stack you know yeah. that was written for for uh, x86 computers not for GPUs not for massive parallel technology so those languages that exist in that world is Spanda, Scikit-Learn, and those kind of packages, those are just recently been ported to GPUs. Mm. So it's more of a journey there because then you need to change your uh, directive. So instead of using the directive that tells uh, uh, the algorithms to do it uh, on a CPU, you want just to change the directive to do the same thing but using a GPU. So there it, you're, you're either working on a library level or on an object level that you, you basically you do a little bit of a change of your code and then you can start working with GPUs on okay, a massive so, parallel type so, architecture. So in, in the bigger frameworks, this is sort of fixed. Yeah. yeah. Or how do you see it? <laughs> uh, well, Panda or Python actually is rather... I mean, it's not super old, but uh, in the beginning it wasn't supporting GPUs, but it's certainly easier today thanks to TensorFlow and PyTorch and all these kind of languages that use CUDA underneath. Mm. So they're actually, so. what they are doing is they're they working, you're working here, but, but behind the scenes they <coughs> build the stuff that compiles it into CUDA, that compiles it yes. all the way down to GPU. Yes. So they, okay, so you didn't need to shift to CUDA programmer. No, unfortunately not. It's kind of fun to write CUDA kernels and whatnot, I think. Well, Robert Lociani uh, says, that's, that was his, one of the guests, one of our good friends here is like, dude, I just wish people were, were, were building stuff more hardcore, but he's like. Yeah, but the, like Julia, for example, that yeah. is much closer and has like uh, GPU much. and differentiation at like first class level in the language. So some languages are a bit better. So Julia is actually quite much closer to parallel. But Python is by far the leading, of course, when it comes to EDA, uh, AI and to use uh, NVIDIA for, for that type. So it's it's like far, far ahead. Yeah, in um, terms of the size of the community. Popularity, yeah, volume, as you say. Volume, as you highlighted, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And that's a very smart way to work also from being like an old guy that used to be lazy. Mm. And I'm still lazy, by the way, so that's not unique. So so when when uh, when i was a programmer because i was that in when i was young maybe that wasn't really i was programming also back then you know in the in the sandvik and and, and scandia days uh, abstraction layers are kind of Im- important you know because if you don't have abstraction layers like code or something like that, you need to do a lot of work you need to sit in there and <laughs> and write a lot of code to do things and people even though it's really really funny to write a really fast and optimized code or something like that the problem is that in two years times there will be a new uh, CPU technology or GPU technology, whatever underlying technology, and you need to go and do your work again. So if with abstraction layers, uh, I don't have to do the work again because there will be a layer in between translating my good ideas into the underlying massively powerful computing technology that's underneath. So, so as Anders described before, it is so that uh, 
languages which are recently invented or recently modified to support GPUs from the ground up, then it's a no-brainer, as I said, to, to work on that technology. But languages or, 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 or things that are, are older, like the language C or Fortran, for example, there you still have some work to be done in order to fully support pa- massively parallel architecture, basically. Because you don't want to support just a GPU. You want to have a way to work in a parallel way so that you can write parallel algorithms and don't care about what's underneath because people like uh, NVIDIA people or other people will do that kind of layer for you, the CUDA layer or whatever layer it is. They will do that work for you. And we happen to, you know, that... Um, NVIDIA owns also the Portland group uh, that makes this kind of technology, you know, the, the based out of, you know, what city do you think it's based Portland. on? Yeah, good, good one, yeah. So, the, so, so they make that work for you. So instead, you just make sure that whatever you're using have a good abstraction layer down to the powerful platform. On, so you don't need to go back and do your work again. I mean, I think that's one of the core reasons for the success of NVIDIA, who is by far, of course, the leading AI hardware and software that we use today. And, and it's really the, you, you can't switch away from CUDA. I mean, it's so powerful that it's, even if you have AMD and others that you work with as well, Leif, it's really hard for them c- to catch up because they don't have the software and the full stack approach, right? Or but they have very powerful hardware. So th- it is always good with some competition. And being an ex-AMD as well, I have a rather good insights into pros and cons of, of the different company cultures and the way way they think about things and so speaking from like a ex-employee of amd and sound and a current employer of nvidia the important thing is that that there 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 will be new technologies there there will be there will be new ideas how to do things and so but it's important with these abstraction layers Mm -hmm. so that people can adopt these new technologies but somebody has to do the abstraction layers and the, with a full stack approach, and mm. they will do this for you. So that is the powerful force having a, the, the full stack approach means that you have a very good chip technology and you have a very good volume of what you're doing. So then the volume will make it also then available for many people, both in the form of software and in the form of users and in the form of being like, you know, in everybody's computer, available in everybody's computer. To developers as well. I mean, if you make the software good enough so developers can easily use it, that mm. will have a huge effect on mm. the scale, right? Yeah. I think that's really one of the, ways that the media have succeeded so well yeah but right. the, comp- the the competition and the fact that we'll have multiple suppliers of technology that is also a political decision as i mentioned so there's a political decision from the beginning in the u.s to have multiple vendors of x86 mm-hmm. then you have a political decision now that europe should have its own yeah. digital agenda and, and 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 digital sovereignty so that europe should have its own technologies as well and we had technology in europe as, uh, uh, you know, ARM that was yep. c- coming out of the U- UK. And then that was sold to the Japanese, you know, the, the, and uh, and then recently um, uh, NVIDIA won a bid of uh, actually buying ARM because NVIDIA has a vision that it's actually important to also have a CPU, not only a GPU. That was already, that was like, 
the whole story of Nvidia is that you need a CPU and a GPU. We don't have like a some kind of you know vision that you don't need one or the other. You need both. So that's why Nvidia wanted to buy also uh, ARM, and we'll see how that will turn out. Then, but I think we should pause on that because I think it's an important topic and um, a rather controversial one. That some it's people, not controversial. I, I think so, and let me explain why. And uh, you know, Nvidia already has a rather big lead when it comes to data processing and AI, and of course, gaming and graphics. And then buying ARM, um, they also get a big hold into the mobile hardware or software. Would you not say so? Well, we, we, back before I joined NVIDIA, we did have um, technology and stuff for, for, for mobile, but it was too early. Like, we, we, there was no need to have, and there was no battery technology as well to support very advanced graphics and, and GPU capabilities in, in mobiles back then. So they sort of left that venture, and uh, so did most of the graphical vendors back then. So, but of course, the, if, if, if you don't care about, uh, now I'm not talking about NVIDIA or, 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 or where I'm working or, or more about my thinking about this area. Uh, remember when, in, in, as I said, when the internet became very popular. Mm. So there's been no technology before that that was adopted so fast by households than the internet. So not the refrigerator, not the washing machine, not any other, not the cars, not, not the internet was the, the first technology that was really adopted by the whole households in a really rapid, in like an, in a 10 year period, all households basically had some kind of an access to internet in the Western world. So, and that was then accelerated by the fact that you can be having access to the internet 24 seven in your phone. But it started with the personal computer and then it became the, the, the phone to go over and become the tool to access the internet yeah. and to have the internet always on. And that was, if you remember the old slogan from Sun, you know, anytime, any device. And there was a lot of videos which you can look on YouTube, how Sun was describing the future. They, they, they got some things wrong in that video, uh, early 90s, but... Um, uh, they got, by the way, they got the hairstyles wrong. So they thought the hairstyles in the future were going to be the same as in the early 90s, which is not the case. You had these large hairs, you know, round like microphone cuts on everybody. But the other thing they got wrong as well was that in, in that vision, they, when they was assimilating information into the computers, they were using scanners. Because they weren't, they weren't thinking about the effect of digitalization. They thought that information was still going to be largely available in printed material. So if you look at those kind of videos, you, you put the material onto the screen, and then the screen assimilates the information, and then it becomes digitalized. So that was the vision back then. Now, when we are in, uh, in later in, 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 in development, things are more and more getting digitalized from the beginning. So that we can work with digital data all the way, end to end, sort of, you know. And, and, and that leans back then to the question about this thing with the mobile phone and, and, and the technologies like ARM or Intel or so as, as a uh, underlying I don't think that is the important thing, really. About why do you think Nvidia bought ARM? We haven't bought them yet. 
Yeah, but so Nvidia hasn't bought they have made a bid and now we're negotiating and stuff yeah. like that so so I cannot comment on that because I'm not involved at all yeah. in that okay. but uh, sure. but as an Nvidia sort of you know following Nvidia before I joined and now being working at Nvidia of course it's, it's a subject which is really interesting and I hope it I personally hope it's gonna go well mm-hmm. so we'll see what happens but uh, as I, I, I was gonna lean on the fact that that uh, you think it is so important, Anders, that uh, uh, you, you said it was controversial. And I don't, personally, I don't think it is controversial because I think the power of the future is the data, not the not a specific ship or, or something like that. It is the data and, and where the data is stored. And we should be more worried about who is collecting all the data about me as a person and, and my sort of, you know, interests and... Uh, and I'm more worried about those things than worrying about who, who, what company has a specific ship technology. Maybe all the, those ships technology anyway will be replaced by some other new superior technology like quantum computing taking over, mm-hmm. taking everything. The important thing is that our code, our data, our data processing has to have abstraction layers so that we can move in to whatever technology becomes, you know, generally available that is more powerful than the technology before. Uh, but the people that will have the power in the future is the people that will have the data to, to make the software really that you can move between these different architectures. Those are the companies we should be worried about. We shouldn't be worried about like NVIDIA if we have, uh, if we have a CPU technology or not that we, we can license. Otherwise, we can license and build a, an ARM technology with an ARM license, that is still possible. Mm-hmm. But but it was like somebody had to buy ARM because it was out for selling, basically. Mm-hmm. And then NVIDIA was one of the companies uh, putting a bid for it, and it was a winning bid. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It, but it's it's not finalized yet. So, yeah, um, we'll I see think what you, you have a good point that the data is really core, but it's also a core uh, to have great computational power available. And I've personally been playing around with the GDX A100 and, and seeing the power that these type of latest... NVIDIA machines have, which is really impressive. Um, and perhaps we can move into to that topic a bit and, and go a bit into HPC in general, because that's a field of expertise of yours. Yeah, yeah I've been working with that too long now. So <laughs> I'm trying to get away, but it's not really possible when you're as old as I am. So you keep get, getting back to your sort of, you know, and, your, and uh, technologies. that's happening a lot now. You know, when we mentioned Europe when we started this pod as well, and we spoke a bit about the investments Europe is going to do, European Union, yep. I, I mean. And we're already seeing this big HPC clusters in Finland, and we have um, NVIDIA Superpod in Linköping University now called their Berzelius, etc. But I, I'd like to just give a, like a back and remind you of different types of HPC, and, and it would be fun to see if you agree with that or not. So I think there are a number of different types of HPC. One is the more traditional one, which is you know the supercomputers, the crate computers, the rocket scientists, the rocket scientists, the rocket scientists, I guess, and uh, and they had a different type of hardware, different type of software, and different type of applications. You know, applications like weather forecasting or biological biological simulations and, and things like that. Bio- written by humans. The, 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 the algorithms are written by an intelligent. It's not data driven in that way. Exactly. Yeah. So it's an intelligent guy who wrote the software. Yeah. Not an intelligent machine. Cool. Uh, and so that's one layer. And, and you mentioned as well, I think, the big data uh, part of it or tier of it. So big data is different. It is not... It has a different history. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's different machines, different mm-hmm. hardware. It's yeah, yeah. kind of mid-range hardware's x86 CPU based ultimately, but still yeah. it's, it's usually parallel. I mean, it can be hundreds of thousands, but of it's machines. parallel in a different way. Hadoop is the oh. you know it, it's a it's a different ecosystem. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's different software then, we and it's dependent on the network to become parallel. Yes. So it yeah. really requires a lot of you know. Network good good network capacity. Well, we do. It still was the case with the supercomputers as well. But I'm just saying that uh, since it is a, uh, uh, an art of uh, working with data, mm. of course, it requires a lot of I/O. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have the supercomputers and we have the Cray machines and the applications they have. We have the big data tier, which has different hardware, different software like Hadoop, Spark, etc., and different applications, which is you know all the tech giants are doing. You know, being data driven these days and building data pipelines and need to process a lot of data and, and big the, the KPIs and the business intelligence you need to, to do that. And then you can think of a third potentially, which I guess we can call it AI, and that's a different set of hardware again. It's GPU-based, like NVIDIA machines, and it's different software. It's the PyTorch and TensorFlow and CUDA of the world. And, and once again, it's different applications. Um, so this is more like building data-driven solutions, using data to actually build up the rules instead of manually programming, as you mentioned a number of times. And then we can find you know completely different type of applications compared to uh, the traditional HPC or supercomputers and, and uh, big data. And potentially we can have the fourth The one. fourth one, the quant. The quantum computing, since we... We have already gone there. A bit about that. And once again, you will see different type of hardware. We need quantum computers suddenly, and certainly different type of softwares. And I I would say certainly different type of applications once again. Would you so far agree? At least we can identify a number of different tiers of HPC. Would you call all of these HPC type of tiers, if you call it that? But you are correct that you have um, a history of uh, different branches, developing evolutionary into mm-hmm. more and more better solutions in that specific uh, stack stack but, we could call it stack but, so but we, so have we the see these four branches it is really it's branching now in i mean like they're all evolutionary they're yeah, all getting better and better yeah but we can see four distinct stories i agree i agree and we shouldn't forget the fact that uh, this was early recognized by uh the, the NVIDIA that I work for, that we identified that, okay, there will be a a, a, a sort of, you know, the different branches will come together because that's the way that the new data center in the future will be but built. But will they? So, so, yeah, yeah, they will. So the, you will have to support all of these branches, you know, in, in the data center of some kind. Maybe not quantum then, but the, but the ones with the history, the ones that have that <laughs> yeah, more than think, 10 years of history, I think big they will, come, to, they will yeah. come together. Well, why won't so, we have a Betamax? Why don't we have a Betamax moment here? Why, why will not, we'll not have a Betamax moment? So we are betting on Betamax versus VHS. Supercomputer versus big data versus like this. And I'm now going to bet, uh, as you said, unlimited funding on Betamax. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Are, are, we doing, are, we, are we betting on Betamax in Europe? You know, or how should we hedge our bets? No, I think that uh, my personal thoughts on this is very much that since NVIDIA and also myself recognize that uh, eventually these technologies will, 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 will fuse. Um, so, and maybe not quantum because quantum is still a novel technology, but the mature technology with a history. So you have the, all the Hadoop stack with, the, with how to store and, and, and process data. 
You have the classical rocket science, especially, which is about simulations. Exactly. So it's actually yes. simulations. So, so we have different uses. Use yeah, because simulations is, is working with synthetic uh, I, algorithms written by a, a person, which does yeah. cal- so that's simulations. And then you have AI, which is written uh, software, which is written by software. So, so it it is a different. So, uh, so be, let's be explicit now. The, the the hypothesis is that they will converge. And what is driving the conversion is that they are suitable for different use case applications. Is is that the simple? Why will they merge? Why uh, why, why uh, do we think that? Because uh, you will buy computers because you have a need to do compute, and you are a researcher. Even if you are a researcher with twenty years of backgrounds of being like really good programmer, in the example you you had one example weather forecasting. Mm. Let's take weather forecasting as an example. Mm. We can also take drug discovery as another example. How you'd find mm. a new yes. uh, treatment for a specific Which disease. Which is, by the way, is changing now. How you think about that? Yeah. So both these were made with simulations before. So yeah. you simulated how the weather was gonna be based on mathematics model and the same for drug discovery so they had mathematical models of how molecules work with other molecules and you tried to find like a new drug based on what you knew about this this and it was written by humans the code well, the difference now is that when you have a data driven approach and you collect a lot of data about a specific uh, virus um, or a specific weather phenomenon because based on, on the history of the uh, We are, we are competing the, the supercomputer now. Yeah, and, you get a, and then you get a different way of doing the same thing. So you get an AI algorithm which is really good on doing the same thing that the human brain was doing before with his code. But it's, it's proven numerous times to be uh, both more precise in the prediction of what is going to be the good drug or, 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 or what the next day's weather is going to be. So it's better on, on, on prediction, but it's also running faster on modern hardware because it's not software that's written by human, so it's written by computers. And there also can, from the beginning, ground up then uh, in an architecture that can really make use of things like GPUs, a massive parallel computer. They can make use of it in a way that maybe the handwritten code wasn't able to do before. So, so with those facts, we know that the combination, even if you're a scientist that when they're really, really good in molecular biology or whatever your domain is, you will recognize the fact that the AR algorithms are faster and more precise. And if they are faster and more precise, you get two effects. A, more precise, you can do your job better. So that is important for most scientists or, or researchers or people in the industry. They can do your job better. That is interesting. Uh, if they are faster, what does that mean then? Well, I can do the same work cheaper. And we can agree that in most cases, there's not abundance, limitless funding. So it's not limitless funding, meaning that I cannot, uh, even if I was really good programmer before, I needed a supercomputer that costed like 150 million US or something to do my work. And, and that is not realistic for one scientist's work, you know. So instead, you will have, if you have these AI algorithms, which are, you know, in a, in a different way written and more parallel in nature and require less number of nodes, because the nodes which are parallel in nature have things like GPUs and stuff inside, they can, you need a fewer number of nodes to do the same kind of work, and which is faster because it's just done in a different way. It's done parallel by software written by 
computers, which in, in that case becomes much cheaper than available to do the same work as you did before with handwritten code on this large, large, large uh, experiments or, or proving a thesis on a large supercomputer. You can do the, do the same thing with an AI algorithm. You will still need that others... Uh, uh, Why? So yeah, you need to cross. You need to c- correct. Okay. You need to check that your that your work is like you know not like you know going because it's still the because in science there is something called that you need to prove your theory. So, so by having two different compute approaches, it's also a way to validate. Yes, um, everybody that knows the history of science or the definition of science really is that you have a theory and then you have to prove your theory. The hypothesis. And, and you, at least for numerous years ahead, we need still to prove our theories. I think in 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 one way we need to prove them in the old way to as a reference material. But we can we can do then when we know that our algorithm is sort of working and and, and it's not it's actually precise, then we can. Uh, at day-to-day use, we can use the AI algorithms because they are requiring uh, much less uh, expensive hardware and and much uh, faster to get the result out of the computer. So you can get the result out in a, in a, in a couple of days instead of waiting uh, uh, weeks for the result to, to run on the, but, on the but classical But shouldn't then the, the AI investments of Europe or the hardware HPC investment of Europe follow that fundamental logical principle of validating against each other. That sounds like a really good idea. Well, they, but, they, but they do in, in, in certain... Well, Anders mentioned that they are spending a lot of money on quantum technology. That is true. But they're also spending a lot of money on, on, on the EURHPC program. And in the EURHPC program, they are funding a number of supercomputers which are built just with the best available technology. So it's basically a process where they are buying a, a number of, of supercomputers now in Europe. I think the total number is around 10. Three of those are pre-exascale computers. So, so exascale is like you know, yeah. a vision of a really powerful computer that will soon be available, but it's gonna, still it's a little bit uh, out what you can build with today's technology. But with pre-exascale, you can get... You know, Really, really powerful computers for a reasonable amount of money because it's based on on volume products like GPUs and CPUs and and uh, and hard disks and things, things that which are produced in large quantities, mm-hmm. and and three of those supercomputers uh, are going to be in Europe now for the and the, for the first time Europe will actually be very high, uh, at least for a while. I mean, I remember in my, maybe before I was born, Europe was really big on supercomputing and, and really leading in the world. I don't remember that, but uh, in, in, as long as I've lived and I've, I've seen the dominance of, of, of the US and, 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 and also competing then with, the, with China has been and the Japan competitor. Well. Yeah. That has been the competition, really. But for now, for the first time, with this investment that Europe is doing in these three supercomputers, we will have three supercomputers really high up on the ranking of, of the top 500 or even the top 10 supercomputers. Then, uh, and these are bought with, uh, you know, uh, uh, money investing then in what is available today. But are they balanced? So we're not are spending all the money on, on, on quantum. Yeah, and let's hope they continue that way. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not as confident as you are that that will happen, but I hope they will continue in that way. You, you know, we, we just have like 10 minutes left. And, and um, I think, you know, one thing you said, and just to give some num- number to like weather forecasting, as you said, is something we do at Paltorino, for example. We, you know, traditionally, if you do it in the old style, it's basically simulating the physical world, as you said. 
And I think it takes like three hours for SMH uh, HI to, to do like weather forecasting, a single one. And it, it's using a supercomputer worth like millions of uh, euros to, to do that. And um, you can basically train an AI model today to that costs, uh, yeah, hundreds thousand or 10,000 euros or something. And it can do a single forecast in a fraction of a second instead of three hours. I mean, it, it's insane how big the difference is. And it also is performing better. So, I mean, I think that's that's a really interesting use case. And the same with drug, drug discovery, as you said. Exactly. And instead of simulating, you have this alpha fold two that do protein protein folding, and they I think it went from like like around fifty percent accuracy to above eighty seven or something. It's mm. a huge, huge improvement. Yeah, what is alpha fold for? You used one a small, small topic because I think yeah. this is one of the biggest news that came out in the last six months. Yeah, so so it's a DeepMind uh, neural network um, that basically can do protein folding. So given these kind of uh, proteins that you have, the sequences, it can actually predict what the 3D structure should be. And that problem of converting from the sequence into a 3D structure is called uh, protein folding. And yeah. usually so it's actually way. it's actually going back. So remember the old Ada Leveless and Charles Babbage, you, yeah. you can represent anything in numbers. So one thing you can represent in, in numbers is DNA. So you can take DNA from from the human body or from a dog or from a plant and you can and you can do what is called DNA sequencing you will turn it into digitalized format of that specific thing and one thing that you can digitalize then is uh, proteins yeah. and proteins if you have the digital representation of a protein which have, you've done all the work now you have the digital of some, in some cases, you want to see how it is looks, like how the visual representation is. So you want to go back into the real world. So you want to take that uh, numerical thing and and have a look and, at and it. basically print it. And that is AlphaFold. So AlphaFold is printing, predicting how it's going to look based on the numerical representation of the object to go back then and look. Okay, this is how it's going to look if it if you want to look. That's at a molecule. It. Yeah, exactly. So. That is really interesting technology. So you go yeah, from, so. first you have something, and then you digitalize it, and then you can uh, print and it. And I, I think you're going to print a lot of things in the future. And what is the core neural network style? CNN, scans, transformers? Yeah, more CNN-based so far. CNN based. Not transformer yet, but it's probably coming <laughs> <I know>. soon. <laughs> cool. So, given I'd like to just bring up some topics, and you can choose, Leif, what you want to focus a bit on. Um, I think one topic would be interesting is uh, BioBirch, uh, that I know you, you know a lot about as well. Yeah. And that could be one topic. Uh, it could be another one uh, more about like vex- different type of vaccines and how they're developed. And we but know these things uh, are all related. So it it's, is, uh, right? it's, yeah, they are. So basically, yeah. if you if you want to do something um, in uh, the industry of pharma or, or in research in in about the human body and things like you know proteins, and the reason you do it is is, is probably because you want to find out more about the human body, more about the proteins, but also how the how the proteins are possibly then uh, not perfect, and uh, maybe you are. Um, carrying some disease. The disease can either be in the form of a virus entering your, the human body. It can also be an, what is called a genetic disease. You have something wrong in your DNA that you got from your father or mother that's going to lead to a specific disease later in time. So there's a number of reasons you want to know about the human body and how, how it works. Both the DNA 
but also how the how this kind of disease can potentially be treated then. So if we can treat genetical disease like they were born with, that would be magical, you know. Mm. So there's a lot of work going on in that area. But the, the more famous recent work has been around, you know, we got this big pandemic thing going on in the world, oh, really? COVID-19. Yes. So a lot, of the, a lot of the work has been recently about how to construct then uh, drugs in basically in a faster way to treat a specific disease. Yeah. So uh, a lot of these supercomputers that we have sitting here and saying that they've been only been used to calculate, you know, nuclear atomic bombs and, and, and things like that. They've actually been used now to, to in the, in the, in the serving that, that, that. so actually the whole of 2020, mm-hmm. most of the supercomputers have been yeah. devoted to, to working on problem. these kind of problems. And, and that has meant that we know a lot more stuff now in 2021 when, than we did in 2019 because of the focused work that's been done by all the scientists and all the supercomputing centers on COVID and, and how to do different vaccines and so. And some companies who had already collected a lot of data, mm-hmm. uh, I think Moderna is one of them that had a vision that you become a, more of a digitalized company already some years back. So, so some companies then have been able to produce vaccines in, in a record short time right. because normally t- developing a drug takes more than 10 years and most of those like 90% of those experiments using old methods they fail yeah. if you can do more work faster in a supercomputer you have a better chance of succeeding and 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 we, I think we have now a number of um, vaccines against COVID that is uh, out in the market and uh, we also at the same time also have a number of uh, new uh, uh, things we can do with supercomputers that relates to this. One is, you mentioned AlphaFold to, mm-hmm. to look at how a protein is constructed. Another thing we can do is Google Deep Variant and variant calling on DNA to look at how to learn more about, you know, uh, variants in, in DNA and stuff like that. So there's a lot of stuff going on in this industry using supercomputers for life sciences. Right. So not rocket science anymore but now they are life science computers that's a life-saving computers yeah. life-saving so life computers. science in computing is the new hot term yeah, yeah. yeah. it used to be rocket, rocket science yeah. you're a life scientist uh, I want, now we have we always <laughs> yes. like to have our t-shirts so <laughs> life scientists data scientists crossed over rocket scientists crossed over life, life scientists, scientists. Life yeah. scientists. Yeah. and so, so that's, that's that's ai that's ai and that's what i work with currently so i work in in, in the life sciences sort of you know area now in in Nvidia, and it's been really, really fun during during the. the it's been fun during the pandemic from that. <laughs> so it's been <laughs> it's been fun mean. during like with really interesting work going yes. on all the world. But it has not been fun being stuck by a computer every day, not being able to travel and meet people. But I mean, it's still it is it's from been, a science point of view. It's from been a science point of view, from uh, the pandemic, we've talked about this before. It has shown us also in some ways what we can do how fast we can move, how fantastic things we can do, as long as what you said before, you need to have urgency. Like yeah. the problem is when yeah. we don't have real urgency, yeah. we don't take the right decisions. But remember, we have had urgencies before. We had World War II with the Alan Turing machine and the code breaking and stuff like that. We had the Cold War and, and the race, the space race during the the, the 60s, 70s, etc. So there's been drivers. And now we have a new driver. The pandemic is a new, the new driver, you know. So the pandemic's really accelerating. So, yeah, it, so, the, so the, it actually follows the history of what's the urgency and the drivers where we then make a leap. 
even in the computing definitely, uh, definitely. I think that's a great segue to perhaps one of the final questions. Uh, and you, I think you have very uh, concisely and nicely described the history of computation in different ways, even back from 1840s and, and forward. But if you were to have a forward-looking uh, view on this, what do you think lies ahead of us in coming 10 years when it comes to computation? Or longer? I think two things. Uh, one is that AI will become more uh, widely spread as a way to uh, process data on computers because still the handwritten codes are still, you know, quite popular. Yeah. But AI will become more, because it's much more efficient to use AI to, to process data with computers. But I don't think people understand that we're talking about the new coding paradigm. I, th- I think very few people understand it I know, it like I know. It's, it's just a you, new way of coding computers, the simplified. But no, yeah. and, and people, yeah, it's computers people, writing the software instead of humans. So that is going to be very big. But that simple statement changed the whole mindset and outlook on what you're doing not this is not advanced analytics or bi forget about that it's an it's new way to write code yeah but you need data in order to write this code so that means that the, when you say predict okay i, I predict the data wars mm-hmm. so i predict closed yes, borders firewalls and you don't want to share the data because the data mm-hmm. is the data new gold sales is the new gold yeah, because so the, it's producing so that gold. is what uh, mm-hmm. i'm not worried about who owns what uh, cpu technology or gpu technology who data owns the wars. data? The data wars is what I see in the future. So Star Wars, Cloud Wars, data wars. And I also <laughs> see that the since uh, you remember the history that you, in the beginning that the computers were not connected mm. and then came the internet and then became the supercomputers when they're all, they are connected. So, so network technology will be important in the future. What do you mean with network technology? Uh, are we talking the technology is how to process data from point A to point B because we need to read that data, share that data, send the data within at least within our organization. Maybe we don't want to share mm, the data. But we but want to send it inside our organization in a controlled manner. You open up the Pandora's box because I've been thinking a lot about the architecture of of a of a distri- distributed architecture mm. uh, or decentralized. Mm. I think yeah, is yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that is difference? what I think the what's technology the is having. Yes. This is good. What's mm. the difference between distributed and decentralized? I liked it. I like this comment. Yeah, um, I'll <laughs> speak in, in length about this. But, Shit, but uh, I need that one. <laughs> <laughs> we have no time limit suddenly because now we're going to talk about decentralized called versus distributed. Yeah. Could we please take five minutes on the difference of distributed and decentralized? But, but guys, we can continue. I think that the, the hot stuff are coming now. I, we finally came to today. Yeah, you know what? If, if, you, if you don't mind, when we cut this up, we, we took a long, long time on the introduction. There's no cutting on this. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you that. No, so the first part is almost, so maybe now this is, could we do it? I, I wouldn't mind. Yeah, yeah uh, I, I can start and you can fill in perhaps. Um, mm. But my view, you know, you have distributed training, for example, of models, which is basically taking, you have the data centralized to begin mm. with, and then you distribute it out to a number of machines and to do parallelized training. Yeah. It makes it faster, but you still have the data first centralized, which is hard to do sometimes and, and not always possible. If you do decentralized training instead, you don't actually centralize the data first. You have you keep it decentralized. Yes. And that can mean data in the mobile phones and it never leaves the mobile phone. Or it can mean data that has, you know, exists in a hospital and it never leaves the hospital hospital because it can be patient journal texts or something that's really sensitive. So but you still want to train some model on it. So instead of sent or extracting the data, you move the model to the data. Mm-hmm. And then you do decentralized training. 
And this is like federated learning and these type of techniques um, where you can train the model on a part of the data and then instead distribute the model instead of distributing the data. So that becomes more decentralized yeah. type of... And I see it also, the, if you want to talk about what is technology which could be coming may, potentially, I'm not sure, but I'm having a, like a crystal ball then. Mm-hmm. You mentioned quantum computing. Yeah. I think that what people are missing is that the computers that we saw before on the picture, the really old ones, they were made of... Um, copper wires and uh, transistors and before that cathode tubes but mm-hmm. but transistors and copper copper wires between the transistors are the way that the sort of you know the sort of the modern computers are built still mm-hmm. so they're still based on transistors and and copper so technology why don't we talk about so i think that uh, what people are missing is that we have an opportunity to make it much faster by moving away from transistors and uh, and copper into pure light-based, photonic-based computers. And people are missing that because people are now thinking about quantum computers. If we think about the computers, how they work today, if we translate that from transistors and and copper wires into a full optical layer, you have solved two problems. You have solved the way to how to make them faster. Uh, when we can't make them faster in silicon, we can make them faster using a different speed technology, fiber optics. Yeah, speed of light. So NVIDIA acquired Optigot, which was a Gothenburg Schalmer startup who, who does like, you know, fi- fiber technology where you pro- send the data from point A to point B. And that technology is very important in the future. I, I used also to work to with do storage. Ships. I used mm. to work with storage and we bid SON, SON network for the banks, mm. right? This is back really, really early, right? So this is already here. We talk fiber. And, and, but it hasn't come further into the actual chipset. Not for the actual chipset. So I envision a future where computers will potentially be based on photonic computers mm-hmm. and uh, to be photonic all the way, sort of, you know, maybe not in a couple of years, but in the end, because we cannot make the transistors smaller, we cannot do negative size. Mm-hmm. You, They're now at the five end. nanometers. Yeah, yeah. We cannot do negative it's size. It's a few atoms or something. Yeah. Uh, so instead, if we want to make them even faster, now we need to move the... Quantum is one answer, but I think for a general it? purpose computing, maybe photonics is an easy way to go. And what is quantum? Sorry to open up Pandora's box. Just, just, I, I am a strong believer in what you are saying because I think that what we are confined with right now is the technology, how we have con- uh, constructed all these computers, uh, copper, and et cetera. In 86, there was like a research on a, on a, um, on a ore called uh, Lorendite. The whole idea was actually to create a super compute, uh, computer that is going to uh, based on this um, ore capability to, uh, it's the only ore in the world that can actually attract the neutrino from the sun, right? So if you find like a small that invention that actually you can capture that in a small cube, you have solved the way how you can actually store a massive amount of data in a small cubicle. And that is basically the future. So I completely agree with you about that because it's about new ways of thinking how we store data. Mm. Uh, it's not the uh, other way around. If we think copper again... Store data, done. read data, data. and mm. process data all in the same technology. We don't need photonic. to move. Mm. So no. we don't need to go from photonics like fiber transmission yeah, exactly. data and then or to back s- to copper and then into silicon. If we can do photonic Phot- all the way, I think we're going to ha- uh, get get much faster computers. That's a theory I have anyway. And 
to I, I wanted to uh, for the sake of the listeners because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of listeners to this pod. Uh, I want to give a couple of uh, tips for mm-hmm. the for the listeners. So, first of all, uh, there are is I already mentioned the movie, the Imitation Game. Yeah. So if anybody hasn't seen the movie Imitation Game, just go and see it because it's it it, it sort of so shows why why computers are are interesting and yeah. and and and, and the, uh, when you have a specific thing you want to do when you're really really motivated you can actually then not only can you create a specific computer architecture you can also program it to do a specific task and you can succeed in doing something that's not been done before so that is the power of computers and and, and working in this industry if you have a good idea it is possible to translate your good idea into something really but, but this is profound we are missing nine times out of t- ten why we fail with data and AI and AI operationalized AI is because the, the concrete problem is not concrete enough and it's not translated into the, the, the mathematical or re- the representation in ones and zeros. Oh, mm. I want to have better customer loyalty. Mm. Uh, it, this is good, but you need to start thinking how would you translate that question into ones and zeros, mm. which is the foundation of this conversation from yeah. the start, right? Yeah, and I think this is where a lot of the normal traditional companies fail. They haven't they haven't done this, you know, business to data to in ones and zeros translation in their head. They haven't sharp enough defined the problem. Yeah, and and also to to I, I only mentioned if you look at if you if you look at that movie, the imitation game, that is one specific uh, computer and one specific guy that the story is about. If you want to know more about the other stuff I was blathering about, <laughs> there is a book. I have a friend um, who is, lives in the US, so he's called Merle Giles. So he is older than I am, so he is much better of, of, of the history of supercomputers than I am. So he, write, he has actually wrote, written a book then. So in his book, The Introduction and, and History of Supercomputing, I recommend that people buy this book and read it because he made a lot of effort so that, because he's been working in the supercomputing industry for so many years, and he sort of recognized the fact, okay, there is no good book that describes this history. And soon people who work with this will be dead. Because okay. the, the rocket science, in the, I mean, this is an old stuff. People will soon be dead. So he tried, before people are dead, he went out and interviewed and wrote a lot of um, Fantastic. Uh, of documentation of what is known today then, before it is sort of lost. He wrote it in a book. So. Oh. Of course, this book is also digitalized. <laughs> <laughs> but you can get the paper version as well. You can order a paper version. So Introduction and a Brief History of Supercomputing by Merle Giles. I really recommend that book. Uh, I have a signed copy myself, So yeah. uh, since yeah. I'm a friend of mine. So... Uh, also, there will be a um, movie or tra- um, some kind of thing coming out in the next couple of days. So watch out. So um, there will be a story on uh, this uh, computer that we are currently together with our partners building in uh, Linköping, which is, will have the name Berzelius. That is one of these super powerful AI computers um, that has... Um, been acquired and to support the Swedish researchers and the Swedish research uh, society uh, and to, to keep Sweden competitive in all of this, you know, AI area. So I really recommend you, 
what, uh, keep an eye open for, for, for that launch when that computer will be uh, commonly available and to, to these, um, these organizations that are involved in working with that supercomputer. So, and, and when did it go live? It is uh, going live quite soon. So quite you, will, you, will, live you, quite will, uh, you will notice when so it goes live. So this is live. part of the launch? Yeah, the launch is coming up in a very short period of time. So keep your eyes, eyes open now. And, and what was the reason for the name? You know. Oh, the the Berzelius. So Berzelius is actually so that two guys in Sweden which are really, 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 really famous. And now you have to guess which ones. Linnea. Uh, <laughs> oh, he nailed it. I'm impressed of this guy. He nailed it. So Linnea is the most famous Swedish scientist, and number two is Berzelius. Yeah. So if you go, uh, you know this uh, Berzelius Park in Stockholm. Yes. There's a statue of him. So yeah, you can read all about Berzelius on online and what, and and he was very very early on 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 doing things to represent things uh, uh, with numbers. But his he this was not the. In the form of uh, digitalization in that aspect, but he was working a lot with categorization, uh, classification. Yeah, he was working a lot with, but he's he was specializing in in chemistry, I think. So he was putting figures on mm. different substances, you know, to classify them. Mm. And Linné was classifying the plants and the the, the, and the, and the, forest, or, the well, arts. Yeah, the arts, yeah, yeah. So 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 they were both sort of, you know, in that industry. Oh. In that area, in of the industry of classification, exactly, <laughs> exactly, and both are internationally acclaimed super scientists of that time without using supercomputers. Plus, Bernelius has L I U in it, which stands for Linköping University as well. Uh, so I think they thought uh, that was very, smart. very smart. And he also was born there, so they oh, saw they, he has so they, they have many well reasons. Ah, Someone okay. has thought so many reasons. This is actually yeah. a really good, cool name. I think yeah, it yeah. has many. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's the game of classification it's, it's the, you know you can you can choose whichever <laughs> logic you want they're all great but he's ranked number two of like Sweden scientists in, in history so he's ranked number two so that's that's high up you know so number one was the name number two was Basilius this is by the way this is old from the internet so I had no clue on this before <laughs> I read it on the internet so pretty so, impressive you know um, <laughs> so I did, did study this because uh, I usually since I work in this supercomputing industry, all supercomputers has a name. Yeah, yeah. And every time they get it, and sometimes I know who it is, like Linné. If a supercomputer is called Linné, I will know who it is. If a supercomputer is called Ekman, for example, Ekman. as one of the Swedish ones are, wow. I had no clue who Ekman was before. I had to, like, wiki, I had to Google him and, and to find out who Ekman was, by the way. So it, it is... Um, and another comp- supercomputer that we had was called Tegener. So that, in that case, I knew who it was. So, so that was fine, you know, but uh, still I didn't know, oh, can you name a supercomputer after a... Uh, I had to go check it out. Okay, no, no, it, was, it, was a, it was a famous scientist eventually. And I thought it was a poet. And we've spoken a lot of Berzelius. Perhaps we should just mention some technical details. Uh, do you have the details of how big it is and things like that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Can a well-known fact. Yeah. yeah, so uh, at NVIDIA, when we started doing this kind of, in 2016, when I joined NVIDIA, we started doing, uh, we call it then, purpose-built appliances for AI. So basically, not a computer anymore. It is 
the full stack approach, as I mentioned like 28 times now during this <laughs> broadcast. So um, it is a box with an operating system and a software stack specifically written for AI. Yeah. So we sold them by the box in the beginnings. So we sold one and one to two companies. Then like, you know, I was selling it to the automotive industry in Sweden in the beginning they were very early in adopting this and uh, then later on I, I, I started working with life sciences and our life sciences customers now using it for things like drug discovery and such and as part of this we we are now starting to 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 sell this more and more in the, in, in 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 a way that you can build a supercomputer just for doing AI. So with, with that, it's a difference because before we were selling one box by a time, now we are trying to sort of think about, okay, how do we make this work in a larger scale? Several boxes as one cluster. Because that's normally how supercomputers are built. Mm. So this is supercomputers for AI. And they are called superpods. I don't know who... who mm-hmm. I mean, pod, yeah, yeah. It's, but le- but it, could it's we... not this kind of pod that we're doing now, but, by the but, way. It's but I, I would like pod. to understand... This, this is fun- also a superpod, by the way. This is the superpod. This is also a superpod, yeah. But, yes. but to, to deconstruct the pod, if it's a cluster, how it's done... It is definitely a cluster. So it's a cluster of a lot of GPUs and CPUs interconnected by a very fast... Uh, Network fabric, uh, and by the way, we acquired um, Mellanox in order to in uh, in order to make this technology really you know future proof. We want so you're to plane. It's a it's a. We, it's we a also want plane. to develop the network technology that will be ready for the future. So we we as an integrated solution, we have now the the CPU do some some work, the the GPU some work, and then the, the network processes do some work. But all together, it's called a superpod. So all, all this working as an orchestra playing symphonic music. We have some celloists and and some drum players, and we have some flute players, and some some people are playing the violins and stuff like that. So we so all the people in the in the orchestra is there in the room, and and in in the former Baselis, we have sixty of these DDX appliances, uh, AI supercomputers connected to each other. So is this Co- one port or several ports? Uh, this is this is one port. One sixty. So, 160 so one. in short, you can say the DDX machine is one machine, right? Yeah. So sixty so machines in one port. Si- that single machine has eight GPUs in it, and it's yeah. the latest type of A one hundred. Yeah, it is. GPUs, uh, it is right? the latest one, but at the same time, it also has one dedicated network port for each GPU. Mm-hmm. So, so if you have eight GPUs, you also have eight dedicated network ports of, of Mellanox technology Time and Vidya networking is called now, and that oh, yeah, uh, and that all interconnected then in a massive mesh network. You know, a, a yeah. switch network, so that you can now work with this as one big supercomputer for AI. So that is what it is. So in short, it's 480 of the latest NVIDIA GPUs called A100. Yeah, but it's interesting. The 480 of GPUs, 480 uh, network, network. Uh, yeah. blah blah blah, and then and then and do you need to run a different type of operating system when it becomes sup- when when it becomes a pod? Is it specific software for, for pod? Versus running one machine. No, it's uh, these yeah. are all these are all built in from the beginning in in these DDX AI mm-hmm. appliances. It wasn't in, of course, it wasn't in 2016. But the software actually scaled but, from one appliance. But today, to today we have uh, written software. I mean, we started on 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 adopting this technology ourselves in our companies in Nvidia. So we built a couple of supercomputers uh, based on DDX technology before, but, and then eventually we started also to. To, to adopt to sell this into customer accounts where where the customers were also uh, using the same technology Nvidia were using internally 
to process and, 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 and do their sort of AI processing on this kind of computers. And then we found out that actually we, this is a good concept. It actually works. And now we can actually go out and more broadly than uh, tell the world about General the concept. Yeah, yeah. And, and we had to have a name. And we had to have a name. And then came the SuperPod. And I actually don't know who invented it. Probably it was... Um, Somebody in the US. I think we should uh, in, rename in it AI Afterwork Superpod. That would <laughs> yeah. be much more fun, actually. Mm. Yeah. That would be much more for the initiated. Yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of interesting that you, it's now come where this is sort of, not only do we have the technology. You can sponsor us, by the way, and you can have the AIW <laughs> Superpod. Yeah. And this, well, time, this time you need to have a proper GDX machine that works. At the, no, the, if yeah. you sponsor us, we can <laughs> change the name so to you know, AI. The funny story was Let's when, do this. when we opened the club, right? And when yeah. we opened the place and etc. Yeah, so tell the, us this story. The, 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 um, uh, so we launched this place and uh, it was This is the Hyperite like, Data Club. Sorry, guys. Yeah, this was What is the place? It's a Hyperite Data Club. So, it was so this is where the where we're shooting where we're shooting the pod right yeah, now so it's we a seller in central stockholm exactly yeah. it used to be a, a, a huge bar uh, for rental but right now it's a yeah it's hyper data club it doesn't matter it's still a club it's still a bar no, it's uh, hyper data club is still a bar yeah uh, in general yeah so we opened like uh early 2008 i think it was in may and the first uh, event that they actually we have it was the launch of uh dgx2 right yeah that's correct so, because uh, there was a big event going on in stockholm like an ai conference yes and and at the same had. time, we had one of those very early boxes shipped in a, and Anders, Anders mentioned it was a dummy box. So yeah. since you, it was traveling all the time, we didn't dare to use it for any, like, you know, to actually run you, it. Because to, to dismount this one in order to be able to ship it, we had to put it, to take out some pieces and put it in special boxes. Uh, and it was a lot of, but, you know, dismantling, but, but, mounting it together. But the contact is, the, machi- yeah. the, the machine is like a 200 kilo piece. Yeah, yeah it was we, a very we, big we one. We had to like a but big wooden box this is, in order to put it because... Oh, the floors were not it. taking it. It was the, the floor was sinking. So basically, <laughs> you had the launch of the NVIDIA. Which which machine was it? Uh, it was DGX2. Uh, but that was not the point. The point was that uh, when we were, at that point of time, we were thinking like this uh, wine cellar that we have right now, it was supposed to be a super... Um, what is called like a place where we have different data computers, center. data center, and then we have all the programs into data analytics and etc. Yeah, yeah, well, to showroom, yeah, yeah, where basically practitioners can, can come and then product test without any. There is like a you know, uh, I think this is still a great idea. It was, but it, it was a, it, uh, it requires a quite a lot of cash, man. It's a lot of <laughs> <laughs> no, no. He needs to, the life needs to sponsor it. So, so yeah, life is a boring guy, by the way. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, I, I spend a lot of money on other strange interests that I have. So yeah, well, one, of, one of those I just bought a summer house with with my little cash. So I'm I'm already behind on my yeah. yeah so. It's a good segue to the last two questions. So. Yeah, and uh, some some that do have in infinite funding is perhaps Nvidia, by the way. But okay, that's another story. It's never infinite funding. There's, there's that that thing doesn't exist. I I like the idea that we need to talk to Nvidia for the AIW Superpod. <laughs> Leif, what's next in your life? Personally, professionally, uh, what's well, happening next? Well, I am uh, 55-ish. Uh, and uh, of course, I will work as long as I find it you know, great fun and, and can work for interesting companies like NVIDIA. Uh, but I did buy a summer house now, which mm. I uh, intend to in coming years to build a better house on, on that property by a lake up in Norland, in, in Helsingland. And... Uh, 
when I finally retire, I will uh, concentrate then on on uh, on uh, ra- still I'm raising my daughters now as well. But I will continue raising my daughters and explore more of my favorite hobbies, which happens to be fishing and uh, skiing and uh, photographing and uh, playing around a little bit with computers, but less and less actually. And brewing beers, perhaps. I, yeah, but I'm not a nerd, so I'm, I'm not sitting there and and, and documenting. You need in to a be nerdy to really do really good. Yeah, but I have a lot of friends who are into that, so that they that they I, can I sometimes it. join them and sit there and try. But you out can be the taster, right? Yeah, yeah, but I'm still. Um, for me, beer is um, really, really good. But I'm also interested in in eating good food and and uh, talking about interesting subjects with friends and so there's so many things you can do in life and uh, yeah beers is just one of them and, and photography uh, what type of photography well i i am very big into uh, exploring all kinds of photography so um, going out in and finding really really beautiful places and and also finding you know photographing even things which are really small like a flower or something like, like. macro so, even yeah, yeah so i'm i'm really into all kinds of things but i think it's uh, it's so one you're of sony the, guy Right? Are you a Sony guy? No, Sony guy? no, I'm a Canon guy. Canon? I, love, I love the colors of the Canon. I love the colors. I'm, a, a, I'm, very, into, I'm very into colors, actually. So I'm, I'm very keen on getting... I had this problem with the computers and, and, and things like that because a picture is starting as analog and then it becomes a representation in digitalized form mm. as, as I the Lovelace, you know, goes into the computer and then it has to come out also, you know, in the same kind of, you in know... the display. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and that is a complicated thing so don't get me started on that subject so you can speak but at least, at least I work for NVIDIA so I got access to excellent graphics technology but still still no, I'm, I am actually running Canon cameras so I'm not into into but are, are you uh, a no. full format guy Yes, yes, I'm a full phone. As don't you see that? I'm XXL size. Full stack, full format. I'm full stack, full format, <laughs> super pod. That's, that's who I am. I love it. Uh, that's a new T-shirt. Yeah. Full format, full stack, super pod. That's, that's Leif's T-shirt. You're going to have a T-shirt like that, Leif. Mm. Sounds like a Muse song. So. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay. Cool. Um, and last question then. Anyone that you would recommend to come on this podcast, Leif, um, that you would be interested to listening to yourself? Does it have to be a person in Stockholm or...? Preferably, yeah. Preferably less, because uh, yes, because uh, this is the, the 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 format we eat and drink together, so it needs to be on the table. Someone who can get to Stockholm at least. I mean, like mm. right now in Corona, it's a little bit tricky with the traveling. But uh, Sweden, maybe. Now uh, uh, I think that in a year, uh, it will open year. up, and so we will have it I, when we have the conferences. I, I, we will yeah, have it. I hope. Uh, so we have data innovation in October, uh, or we are planning to have it as a hybrid. So as soon as the conferences are open, then we will have like a lot of, uh, you know, international uh, speakers and et cetera coming. So we will start inviting international uh, people. to So come. shoot, shoot. Yeah. So let's start with a domestic first. Uh, here and then and go then for the real guys. Go for the real guys. <laughs> it's up to you. No, I think that um, peop- one person that can be really interesting to, to invite to this uh, podcast is... Um, a guy called uh, uh, Todd Dogerty. 
So it's one of those persons who are really into beers and, mm. and, and really can talk about beers in hours and hours. But he also has spent his entire uh, life working in, uh, uh, in companies who do uh, work as visual effects, you know, cinemas and producing movies and CGI. things like that. And CGI. he lives here in Stockholm, so, but he has worked all over the world in this kind of project. But he's a CGI guy. Yeah, he's been in that industry for very long. And, and, uh, How do you spell his name? The Tog, Todd, you know, Todd, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's like daughter, you know, daughter, Eri, or Eri in the end, so. Daughtery. Yeah. Right, Daughtery, yeah. So he lives here in Stockholm, he lives on Lidinger, so mm. it, it was to be the, the, the fastest and simplest answer, because he has a lot of stories to tell, and uh, he can also talk much more about beer than I can talk about beer. Oh. <laughs> nice. Thanks. Should uh, bring Matthias and him together, I think. Uh, oh, and that would uh, that is going to be a dangerous night, uh, so sure. <laughs> it should be. Leif, um, the time is flying away, but it's been a true pleasure to have you here. I wish we could have spoken so much more about all the interesting stuff you're doing with NVIDIA, about HPC and healthcare and all the things you're working with. But um, it's been a true pleasure. So thank you very much for coming here, and I hope you stay on, and we can continue discussion. We can and continue with the after 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 work. Yeah, let's uh, do that. You know, so yeah, yeah. so um, we get to the really interesting. Now we get. I have, I have a couple <laughs> of questions up my sleeve that let's. I really let, we're gonna stay a couple of lo- mm. bit longer. Good, good. Okay, thank you, and thank you to all the listeners who might have been listening into all of our chats. Then, so all about our our views on where we have been and where we are going in this industry. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.